Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. We're also on Facebook as well. We invite you to subscribe to our feed. You get new episodes delivered right to you through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast tab, upper left-hand corner, find all the fine at our podcasts along with this one, which is fine or not so fine, depending on your point of view. Listen, share, and leave reviews for Political Beats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter, at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner, standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I have to admit, Scott, I'm in a pretty fatalistic mood right now. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the uh, the eventual end of, of all of this, of our podcast. And, you know, I say when, when the podcast's over, you got to turn out the light. You just got to turn out the light because, you know, music is your special friend. It's your only friend, but only until the end. My friend. Jeff hey, you a- know what, Scott? Cancel my subscription to Political People. <laughs> Jeff is on uh, Twitter, at EsotericCD. And we welcome in our guest for this week's show. He is editor-at-large for Wired and a best-selling author of the recent book, Facebook, The Inside Story. Also previously a writer for Conventional Wisdom, the column at Newsweek. Find him on Twitter, at Stephen Levy. He's Stephen Levy. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited about this. Thank you so much for making the time. Before we introduce our band, we, we introduce our guest and allow Stephen some time to tell you a little bit about his career and what he's doing now in the industry. Stephen, what's, uh, what's your story? Okay, well, I went to grad school in Lit, and after about a year of loitering after a master's in 1975, I went back to my hometown in Philadelphia to try journalism, beginning with alt-weeklies. And I had once wanted to be a rock critic, but while I did some of that, I wrote about a lot of stuff, pretty much everything, learned how to write magazine stories, eventually got a job at a regional magazine, then moved to New York City where I was a freelancer. And my professional life changed when I did a story about computer hackers for Rolling Stone in 1982. Hmm. I was like, totally blown away by that world. And I believe that digital revolution was the big story of our times, still do. Uh, and it became my focus, first at Rolling Stone and Macworld, then at Newsweek, where I was their chief tech writer for 12 years. That's when Newsweek was Newsweek. <laughs> And and in 2008, I went to Wired full-time with a detour at the startup Medium, where I started a tech publication called Backchannel, which now merged into a Wired on back where I started. Full circle, as the doors would say. Uh, Along the way, I wrote eight books, the latest out this year, as you mentioned, with uh, the deepest dive into Facebook you'd ever want to hear. Facebook, the inside story, is that new one out this year from Stephen Levy. And he's here with us today to uh, discuss... One of the most iconic rock bands of all time, American rock bands of all time. A short career for obvious reasons, which we'll uh, dive into. And man, there are passionate opinions about this band, really on both sides. And some, um, I don't want to say revisionist history, but some some revised opinions of their work over the years. It's a, a deep and interesting catalog as we enter into the world of The Doors. Stephen, we send it over to you to explain uh, why you love The Doors, how you got into them, and why people should care about this music. Sure. Um, so my musical taste started developing, you know, like most people as a teenager. This is 1966. I was 15 and exposed to Bob Dylan and all that stuff. And 
Um, so when I began buying and listening to freeform radio and going to concerts, as you can imagine, it was like amazing time to be getting into music mm. around them. So I heard about The Doors a few months after the first album came out uh, in early 67. Back then, cultural news did not move quickly. We were sort of prisoners to traditional media, which did not take rock music very seriously. Um, but by the time Light My Fire was a single that summer, I was totally on board. It wasn't like anything else on the radio. The Doors had a distinct and really appealing sound, but they were talking about something that was like once in the adult world, uh, the seedy, sinful part of it. But it also had this kind of punky transgression that a teenager could relate to, especially in those days of the generation gap. And of course it rocked and Morrison was kind of a god, right? would be untrue You know that I would be a liar If I was to say to you Girl, we couldn't get much higher Come on, baby, light my fire Come on, baby, light my fire Try to set the night on fire so I remember in the summer of 66, I was a counselor in training at a day camp. Uh, and every morning, my clock radio would wake me up. And I had this game with myself that I wouldn't get out of bed until Light My Fire played on the radio. <laughs> and I never missed the bus. You, know, they, they played, <laughs> you can always played, count on it. <laughs> it played every day. It was like they, it was permeated. And it was so unusual for a, a cutting-edge band like that to dominate AM radio like that actually was FM, but you know, it, they, it was heavy rotation everywhere. Well, so you're lucky friend... that they didn't play the seven minute long version, or else you would have missed the bus. <laughs> you know, I, I would have, I, I would have missed it. I would have listened to every every note of it. Yeah. So, my friends and I were music snobs, and for a few years, the Doors were one of our top conversational topics. We analyzed everything, like you know, like Robbie doesn't use a pick with his SG, and you know they don't have a bass player, and you know, uh, listen to John Densmore. Of course, we endlessly talked about Morrison, who we thought was a fantastic singer, but had little tolerance for some of his annex. We were snobs, <laughs> right? Though I did have a magazine spread I cut out of somewhere uh, with a picture of Morrison with the legend, cancel my subscription to the resurrection, which I had on my wall. <laughs> So, I, of course, I was desperate to see them live. I'd missed the Philadelphia appearance in early 67. They did at the town hall. But I, I did it in August 1968. Uh, and then again, in May 1970, the Philadelphia Spectrum, which I consider the best concert, of uh, Doors concert I've seen. Um, I hope we'll talk about some of these later on. And finally, almost 50 years ago to this day, I saw them at the Isle of Wight in England, where I was doing Europe after my college sophomore year. Um, so basically, I followed them intensely as a fan during the span of their short career. Though after the third album, um, they'd fallen in my pantheon somewhat, especially after Soft Parade. And I'm not sure if I even bought some of the later albums, but um, I was really heartened by the, quote, bounce back of Morrison Hotel. Um, and though still, by the time he died in 71, you know, I wasn't surprised. Everyone knew how messed up he was. So amazingly, I also went to see The Doors without Morrison in November 1971 at a concert. I was a rock critic for the Temple News that semester and had a plus one for every show in town. So I don't remember much. They did do some Doors songs. 
And it was a brutal understatement to say it was not the same. <laughs> and uh, finally, you might ask, have I ever visited Jim Morrison's grave at Père Lachaise in Paris? And the answer is yes. So anyway, I was a little concerned about taking on the doors as a guest here. I wondered and feared if it would be like rereading Steppenwolf decades after you were enthralled by it in college. <laughs> or Siddhartha or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, I love going down the doors rabbit hole, uh, especially during semi-lockdown. And I'm really, really sure that they were one of the great rock bands ever and certainly unique. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about them. I think it's going to be a really interesting show because I think we're actually going to end up, each of us coming up from, from three different positions on this show. So, like, Stephen is obviously the Doors super fan. You saw them live. I mean, I mean, yeah, hey, man, that's that's better than a, a, us guys born in 1980 can do. Um, I went through a phase uh, in my elementary school and, or rather, my middle school and high school days where I was a Doors super fan. And then this is the reason why, even to this day, I'm encyclopedically knowledgeable about them. I have, I have every album, but I have every single live concert, all those bright midnight bootleg releases. Um, I have all of the boxed sets, the endless milk you out of your your hard-earned summer job money <laughs> cash-in boxed sets. I've got them all. I was a sucker for all that stuff. Still buying them even long after I had ceased being a Doors fan, and this is the thing. I was a big fan when I was younger, and then I had a, a, a period where I went through just sort of almost a, an allergic revulsion to them, an allergic reaction to them. And it probably happened, it probably kicked in somewhere around, say, you know, junior, senior year of high school. I started kind of developing, uh, you know, my tastes in, in, in different directions, particularly getting into prog rock, which, is, of course, if anything, is even more pretentious than Jimbo, you know, <laughs> and his lyrics could be. Uh, and then, of course, and then I realized that you, you start reading musical criticism. And then I realized that there was this entire sort of, you know, subculture of uh you know critics and you know anti-fans who just like would use the doors as a punchline and like make fun of jim morrison oh and what was that great line that dennis leary uh, used to describe the the oliver stone film uh you, you know what's the story of jim morrison is i'm drunk i'm nobody i'm drunk i'm famous i'm drunk i'm dead <laughs> so like that was the way i kind of ended up viewing them for a very long time and you you know even just these days, you know, somebody asked me to say, like, what do you think the most overrated band of all time? It's sort of like an easy, you know, it's it's an easy and I think cheap answer to just plunk down the doors, obviously. Um, I guess I'm going to have to say that I'm, I'm moved off of that a bit. And, and one of the reasons why is doing this show, which has forced me to, of course, go back and revisit all that music that I'd already known for you know decades, but had kind of set aside long ago. And. I still have a lot of really fierce criticisms of this band, and we'll get into them, of course, as we discuss the albums. Uh, but what I think time had obscured for me was their actual and genuine strengths. I think one of the things that you have to say about The Doors uh, is that as an instrumental group, as an ensemble, you know, as a trio, usually augmented in the studio by a bass, and then on L.A. Woman, I think they even got a second guitarist in mm -hmm. there for some of the tracks. Mm -hmm. uh, they are stunningly good all right they are a fantastically hot tight live outfit you know jim might have been stumbling around drunk and you know messed up and in his own sad world on stage but the band was always there playing they were always putting stuff together and they were always going in interesting directions <laughs>
And so I have to say, you go back and you listen to the music alone, and you think to yourself, well, this is actually really, really compelling music. There are some things that don't date well. I, I've never liked uh, some of the organ sounds that Ray Manzarek gets, especially on those first album and you know, maybe you know, parts of the second album. But I think Robbie Krieger and John Densmore are sterling musicians. I think Krieger mm-hmm. I think gets a lot of – like the people who loved Jim Morrison kind of didn't like Robbie Krieger because they thought he's the pop sellout in the band. But I'm saying, <laughs> listen, first of all, he wrote some damn good songs. Light My Fire, that's a good song, all right? Uh, you know, Love or Madly, pretty good song. And uh, the guitar work on these records is never, never – not one note has ever been misplaced on them. And it's funny because you, you just take the doors as a commonplace. You know, you, you hear the music on the radio. It's a cliche. It's, it's Jim Morrison looking sexy in that photo on the Doors' greatest hits album that everyone had in high school. Uh, and you forget about the fact that Robbie Krieger was one of the better guitarists of the entire 1960s. Right. And, and, and I guess the, the one who I really come to appreciate in a way that I probably wasn't capable of appreciating when I was younger is John Densmore. He's a great drummer. Uh, you, you listen to stuff, and I'll, we will focus on it specifically, but you listen to things on like when the music's over, the stuff that he's doing with his drum kit there is is not just like oh you know that's the, you know that that does the job that fills it no no it's actually really creative really inventive it, it, it almost reminds me in some ways of sort of like what what would a Phil Collins do <laughs> and that to me is a compliment by the way because I'm a huge fan of Phil Collins's drumming anyways. The thing about The Doors is that there's so much to criticize, and I think they suffer in a lot of ways from that accumulated, you know, bloated 60s hippie legend that has you know, you know, sort of encased them in uh, – I would say encased them in amber, but amber provides clarity. It's actually – it's almost like it's suffocated them. It's, it's wrapped them in, in gauze and wool, so you can't really see through to you know, the pure qualities, the great qualities of this band because all you get is the legend of Jim Morrison's stoned poet – you know, Lizard King and all that stuff. And there's there's a lot more to them than I think uh, all their critics, and of course I've been one of these critics, give them credit for. Let it roll, baby, roll. Let it roll, baby, roll. Let it roll, baby, roll. Let it roll. Let it roll. Let it roll. All night long. Now, Scott, you're going to represent the third side of this argument. <laughs> Jeff's done a, a good job of setting the table here for our discussion today. And I, I want to start by saying I'm really, really pleased that we have Stephen with us here today because he's going to provide uh, you know, a contemporaneous account, a contemporaneous voice uh, that both Jeff and I uh, miss. We're, we're simply not old enough. Uh, we all came to this, or both of us came to the, this music uh, years after the fact, a decade after Jim Morrison's death we were born essentially a little less than that and so we we come at it from a different angle than, than steven so the doors it's, it's just odd how our scheduling has worked out because if you asked me at the beginning of when we started the show who are the two you know the two big artists that that you you're going to have trouble doing or you don't want to get to it 
I would have said Bruce Springsteen and The Doors probably. Both of those artists I, I've largely kept at arm's length during my life for various reasons. And The Doors especially, for a long, long time, have just rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and, you know, if I were to say why, part of it is I was just not the biggest kind of psychedelic rock fan. And certainly those, those first two albums are, are, are steeped in it. Uh, Morrison's persona, uh, that Vox Continental tone that Jeff mentioned on those first two albums is not my favorite guitar tone by, by a mile. The movie didn't help. The Oliver Stone movie didn't help. And so uh, for all of these reasons, I, you know, as Jeff mentioned, when we talk about bands that are overrated, I would answer essentially the same thing. I, I would put the doors on the list. And so I come into this episode and this preparation by flushing that as much as possible, entering with an open mind and listening to all of this music that Morrison and even post-Morrison too, but Morrison and, and the band put forth. And Jeff, I'll echo a lot of what Jeff said, which is I'm gonna. there's going to be a lot of elements today that I'll be in praise of. Uh, Krieger's work is outstanding uh, in, in a ton of places. Uh, there are some songs that weren't singles, that didn't make the radio, uh, that are high quality. And yet, just to kind of put my cards on the table here at, at, the, at the onset, and yet, for all of this talent, um, and Morrison's a good singer, uh, at least till he kind of blows his voice out toward the end. And, uh, and uh, a- after the Vox Continental sort of slides in the background, you hear Manzarek playing tack piano and uh, other sort of keyed instruments. That gets more interesting, too. I would still say, I would still say through all that, I, I, I don't think they ever produced a truly outstanding album for all that talent. And again, I'm going to praise individual songs, and there are some albums that come close, yet I'm still not sure they, they reached that level at any point. And it's, it's, uh, the pieces just didn't all come together at the same time for me on a lot of these releases. So... That, that's sort of putting my cards on the table up front. I'm looking forward to, because, uh, you know, we've had this email chain that we do before each episode, and I think, as Jeff said, there's three different opinions and even perhaps three different points of view on where some of the strengths lie as we go through the career. So this is going to be a, an interesting episode. I look forward to getting started, which we should do now. As someone should tell us about the origin of the doors. I mean, I'm willing to, unless Stephen wants to take the reins. I mean, it's... it's, well, it's like, I'll, I'll talk about it, because actually, I, I, I've delved in... It's funny, you know, Jeff, your, your encyclopedic knowledge exceeds mine, even though I experienced in real time, because by that time, I, you know, I, I had... I, I already had my degree in the doors, right? So I didn't... When all those box sets were coming out. So I discovered a lot of the stuff just in the last week uh, that I didn't even know existed. Um, but, you know, I, I delved into a couple of memoirs and things like that. You know, what happened basically on the beach in Venice in 1965 is that uh, two classmates uh, ran into each other outside of class, classmates of uh, the film school at UCLA. Um, and uh, one of them happened to be a musician as well, right, Manzarek. Um, and the other was sort of this moody um, film student who, you know, made these 
transgressional and not very good movies. Um, and, and whose dad, by the way, was the admiral at the Gulf of Tonkin incident <laughs> in 1964. Yeah. One of those factoids that you can never get past that Jim Morrison's dad was Admiral Morrison <laughs> and was there in like, you know, off of the, you know, the South Pacific, you know, off of Vietnam when uh, we, we got waist deep in the big money. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, Morrison dealt with that by saying he was dead. Right. Uh, so, uh, um, you know, I, I guess he went down on the hall and took care of him. But uh, the and Morrison, you know, said, I write some poetry and recited a few of his poems to Manzarek. And Manzarek said, that's pretty good. Can you sing that for me? And Morrison was just saying, I'm too shy. I, I really don't want to sing. And he <laughs> cajoled him into singing. And uh, at that point, the voice even it wasn't as strong, but he saw something there. He said, let's start a roll, rock and roll band. We can make a million dollars. Um, uh, which, you know, it sounds insane, but actually that happened. And they hooked up with some other um, uh, people they knew from around the scene, you know, from friends of, you know, uh, Manzarek, who had once been known as Screaming Ray Daniels, was his... Uh, <laughs> was it's, his like, it's, obviously, it's obviously a play on, like, Screaming Jay Hawkins. Exactly, right? yes, right. yes. But, you know, uh, uh, he was an awful singer, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, and, and they, you know, someone gave him some studio time. And they made a demo and everyone in L.A. turned down the demo. Famously, uh, Lou Adler, who was the uh, producer of the, the Mamas and Papas, said, there's nothing I can use here if you learn to listen to every cut. Um, and, 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 they, and by the way, the demo was, was released. It, 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 all seven songs of it are on their uh, that first Doors boxed set which, of course, I dutifully bought in high school. And, uh, yeah, you hear songs like, you know, Go Insane. You hear a little game called Go Insane. And it's just like, wait a second. First of all, a little bit out there. You have to give them credit. It's kind of nuts. But also, like, yeah, this is not, this is, this is not the stuff that's going to catch the ears of uh, Hollywood record executives. But, but something interesting happened. They got a gig at this CD bar a few doors down from the Whiskey A Go-Go on the Sunset Strip. Um, and it was not really a place where uh, many of the hot bands at the time played. They all played at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Um, but uh, the Doors, you know, they played night after night to small audiences, people who <clears throat> weren't paying attention to what they were doing. And they had the freedom to shape their songs, um, come up with new ones, play a lot of blues. Um, and eventually they moved over to the Whiskey, where they were the house band, and got exposed to some of the hot bands at the time and people got exposed to them and the sunset strip was kind of their Hamburg. Uh, if you think about it, so they, they got a chance to become a real solid musical ensemble and to develop a sound, uh, particularly at the first place, um, you know, uh, that was unique and, you know, they never really became the toast of the elite, L.A. scene. You know, that was the people in Laurel Canyon who came out of the folky tradition. That was the birds, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah the birds. And then later, you know, Buffalo Springfield, um, Joni Mitchell. Um, and, you know, and they all you know, have their, you know, lovely little house with the two, you know, cats in the yard and, and all that stuff in the flower pot. And whereas, you know, Morrison was and his contingent were singing about the dark side hmm. their love was dirty it was it was yeah it wasn't flower love it was you know kind of like filthy sheets and <laughs> you know um and 
drugs and, blood. and, and, yeah, and blood debauchery. Blood, right? Yeah. Right. And so uh, it, it was something totally different that never really got acceptance among that crowd. And I think they really embraced that outsider status, uh, ultimately to the detriment, you know, in Morrison's case. Um, but uh, by the time they got a contract, um, this group called Love, which was one, was one of the hip bands there, um, you know, they recommended their music uh, to their record label. And it was a bad move because the record label wound up liking the Doors a lot better than they liked Love. Right? <laughs> and uh, and they recorded the first album, which I think we're going to get to soon, in yeah. six days. And they were able to do that because they had honed those songs so much on the Sunset Strip. I mean, I think one of the other interesting things about the early Doors, they, they finally found, this is actually, it was kind of a, a pretty big deal when it, it would first surfaced a couple of years ago. They found like a tape of the Doors playing at, I can't remember, what is the name of the club? It, it escapes my mind right now. Um, but, you know, that seedy club that Stephen is talking about, they, it's from like June or July London, of 19... 19- London Fog, right. They have a tape. Some some, you know, fan came in with like a Wallen sack, you know, and you know, just taped them. And there's only like twenty five, thirty minutes of a set there. But what the thing you first understand and immediately realize about the doors, their fundamental DNA as a band, and this would, of course, you know, reemerge in, in, in a major way, I think, in the, near the end of their career, and I think actually in a positive way, is that they were basically a white boy blues band. You know, they they did a lot of like these these funky avant-garde uh, moves on their own self-written songs, but you know, Jim Morrison really just liked singing like you know, crawling king snake and like mm-hmm. I'm your backdoor man, and he liked getting into the gut bucket blues stuff. I probably felt like it was a comfortable pocket to slip into, right? Uh, it was you know something that you know it was a, a heritage that belonged to everyone. I think Morrison himself actually said in interviews, he's like you know. Why do we like the blues? Well, we we love the blues because it's one of the two truly American musics. It's there's blues and there's country. He didn't mention jazz. There was a third one there, but I guess the you know Ray Manzarek was really the jazz guy in the mm-hmm. band. It, it it wasn't Jim, but you, Den- you go Densmore too. Densmore loved jazz. <clears throat> yeah, Den Den, Den- well, Densmore is a versatile drummer. Well, well, you you hear that on their first ever single, in fact, but uh. You you go listen to that that early tape and you know they're playing all these blues covers and then all of a sudden right near the end this is again remember this is just July 1966 this is before they have a record contract before they've recorded their first album before any of the fame uh, and then all of a sudden they slide into Strange Days <laughs> and you know it, it's the same song as you hear on the album Strange Days you know Ray is playing in and you realize it's like shockingly avant garde from mid 1960s. 66. So there's something else going on underneath the hood of this band.
I think, again, gets lost in the mythology of the doors, the insufferable. And Oliver Stone probably is more to blame for this. Maybe Danny Sugarman, too. Remember that, 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 that biography, No One Here Gets Out Alive? I picked it up when I was in high school, and I read, like, you know, maybe the first, like, you know, 100 pages or so, and I'm just like, yeah, you know, I, I don't have time for this nonsense. And I threw it down. But, like, that was a huge, you know, part in, in the early 80s of sort of reviving the Doors' image. Uh, all that mythology occludes it obscures it does not illuminate what the band was actually about and what they meant and when i mentioned that we would be doing the doors on our show uh on twitter uh we i got a couple of people who who were actually you know of your age too Stephen, and they wanted me to emphasize this that this you just have to know you have to understand what it felt like in early 1967 to hear this album just sort of you know descend from the skies like totally. a like a bomb out of nowhere. I mean, there was nothing like it. There was nothing like it. There was there was the you know, beginnings of psychedelia, but with you know like Eight Miles High, Fifth Dimension, Revolver, you know, Love, and all of the bur- you know all that stuff. But then you have this weird, dark, almost carnivalesque atmosphere, uh, and invoking interesting shades of sort of like you know you know Weimar Germany you know you think of you, know, you think of the the musical cabaret right right you know with Joel Gray is is the MC you know it's all debauched you know it's it's like a civilization in decline and you know that was what the doors sound initially was and you especially hear it on that first album and the doors debut album is one that I think a lot of people will argue is their greatest album I don't agree. I think uh, I have issues with the production of this album. Not the production, actually. I think one of the things I'll say about the Doors is they're always really well produced. I have issues with, I guess you know, the the organ tone. I have issues with the fact that they're mostly playing as a trio, and they really did need a bass player, at least in the studio, to sort of like loosen them up and give them more options for textural you know, shades and things like that that they would explore later. But there's there's also no getting around the fact that this is uh, this is an album with incredibly good songs. And it's not even the ones that you've heard of. Everyone knows Break On Through to the Other Side. Everyone knows Light My Fire. If you bought that best of that everybody had when I was a teenager, you know, you know, them singing, you know, the Brecht file, you know, show me the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. Those are good songs. But you know what's just as good a song? I'll tell you, Soul Kitchen. All right, <laughs> where we, where uh, you know Jim wants to stay up all night in your soul kitchen, and the band is just like stomping and pumping, and it is blues rock, but it's blues rock with a nasty, weird, freaked out tinge that works not only for its time, but I think still works today. Let me sleep all night in your soul kitchen.
Not shocking, though, that Morrison would, would be the kind of guy who would want to stay past closing time at a, at a diner, right? Just, just sort of stick around. There actually it was a soul kitchen in Venice called Olivia's, but of course he made it into, you know, this sexual I- imagery. And, you know, and, they, and they, they played that song to up to the very end, and a lot of times uh, in their concerts, that would be the last song they play in the encore, you know, uh, you know gotta go now, right? Uh, and it, it was somewhat of his remaining signature song, you know, uh, of, of, along many. Um, you know, I actually, I have to say, I'm one of those people who will say, yes, that's their best album. This is it. You know, and, you know, as Scott, you said, there's, you know, no one album they pulled together. I disagree. I think this not only is one of the greatest debuts in rock and roll, but it has to be on the short list of greatest records in, in in rock and roll and i take into account of that you know what your um you know uh doddering friends on twitter uh i guess i'm one of them uh, doddering <laughs> say that you know in a way you you have to understand what happened in, in the context how they um and it was partly how unique that album was and just the fact that it grew a number one single which was insane that this album which was so transgressional um you know you mentioned the the cabaret like weimar vibe you know literally that song was plucked from that time period Mm -hmm. uh but the whole album had that feel to it the you know that uh you know uh joan didion called them the norman mailers of the top 40 missionaries of apocalyptic sex <laughs> i don't think she was totally approving of that um, <laughs> but 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 it was so exciting to hear that record and you know there's like very few weak points on this record it's very unusual for a, a debut like this they got a, a really good producer paul rothschild who they called the fifth door their engineer Bruce Botnick, they called the sixth door. Um, and they were smart enough just to let them play live in the, in the studio and over six days, you know, lay down what I think is rock and roll history. Well, show me the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. Show me. Track by track, but you know, just the very first song sets the tone 
And really the theme of this record, you know, it's called Break On Through. And it says that we are going to go past the boundaries of proprietary, propriety and shame. And, you know, we're going to use sex and drugs and Dionysian dance, you know, to get the We're going to chase thing. our pleasures here and dig our treasures there. Right? <laughs> That's right. And, some, and in, you know, uh, in Soul Kitchen, they said, like, learn to forget. It was, you know, it's it kind of, you know, pop you know, uh, philosophy here, but you know, this is the, it's so counter culture to the counterculture, right? You, you, you have the dawning of the age of Aquarius it's the eve of the summer of love and the doors are singing of sin and violation and they're rocking while they do it. And I think break on through encapsulates that in, in a couple minutes. And, you know, so it's like a fantastic debut to a historic debut. And I, by the way, the thing I was saying earlier about like John Densmore, this is this is the moment where you realize that this guy isn't just a, you know, a simple, you know, uh, you know, you know, noble savage four four drummer. Mm -hmm. You know, he 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 breaks on a breaks out a samba beat on that song, right? You know, it's a great beat, and it is actually one of those things where like, yeah, you can hate the Doors, you can you can hate the whole Jim Morrison persona, the whole Lizard King shtick. But man, I don't know how you can resist that drumbeat. I, I just think it's such a propulsive rhythm, and it it it, it makes the song actually because I think you know there's a thinness again. My my my. my primary objection to the debut albums that they didn't have a studio basis for most of the tracks here, um, and you know Ray is the way Ray Manzarek played. Uh, his you know his left hand would would hold on one keyboard would mm -hmm. be playing sort of electric bass and this is the way they did it live uh would be playing like an electric bass line and it sounded a little bit like it, it, it was a, you know, a competent facsimile of a bass but it doesn't have the fluidity that you would associate with like a person who's playing an instrument solo and not having to worry about the right hand which is what he would do with his other hand you know he'd be playing you know the vox continental or the keyboard or or, or any kind of you know like uh, you know synthesizer or piano uh, with his right hand and uh you know the thinness of that sound has always bugged me, but I can I can completely forgive it because man, I just love the way they cut into that. You know the day destroys the night, night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, yeah. Chased our pleasures here, dug our treasures there. But can't you still recall the time we cried? Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. that Jim get howls on that chorus, break on through to the other side, which, by the way, he never did live. I think he didn't want to shoot out his voice when they were playing it live for under understandable reasons. But, man, that is an electrifying song. But there are songs where, where I think like that or original trio, um, you, know, you know, ensemble, it, it lets the music down. There's a song on here that I, I on an objective level, 
love. 20th Century Fox, that is a banger of a song. It's a great pun, too. Like, I feel like nobody ever made that joke before. Uh, you know, uh, Jim and the boys did. You know, she's a 20th Century Fox. And the song is cool. The song is great. It's the performance and the production that lets it down because, man, you just need a deeper low end than you get with the band the way that they're performing it. That, that song in particular, yes, is so close to being a really perfect song. Um, and it's just, there's just, it's so thin, there's nothing to hold it together. They try, you know, that there's that, that, that stomping. The, uh, they actually had the, the doors walking on these wood planks to get these pounding effects during 20th Century Fox. I think to, to toughen it up, to, to, to thicken it up, and it's just not quite enough. She won't waste time on There are a few tracks, Light like My Fire is one of them, where there is a, a session bass player playing, but this is... This and it is, helps a lot. Yeah, yeah. But, but this is by far the album where, I mean, the, the, the thing you know about The Doors is there's no bass player. Well, as we'll talk about, there actually were many bass players that would play, and by the end of their career, the bass was an integral part of their, mm. their sound. But on, on this album, a uh, majority of the tracks don't have a bass player, and I, I can't escape the fact that I think, as, as Jeff sort of laid out there, that there are certain songs which would have benefited quite a bit by having that presence, and at the top of that list is 20th Century Fox. I mean, I think Light My Fire is, is a perfect example of what, what is gained by having somebody to take those duties off of Ray's hands, right? Light My Fire, everybody makes fun of it. It's like, you know, you, you, that chintzy organing opening, like, yeah, all that stuff, right? It says, screams, 1967, let's all smoke a lot of really bad weed and, like, pretend that we're hot. You know, that's 1967 for you. But Light My Fire is a song that I was surprised to come back to and found that it held up. And it held up for reasons that I was actually uh, a little bit taken aback by. It wasn't because of Ray's stuff. Ray has a keyboard solo, but it's not really a very, like, distinguished one. He's just playing chords, you know, da, 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 da. Uh, what's amazing about that is Robbie Krieger. All right. Robbie wrote that song. Uh, Jim added one line. I think it was the whole like, you know, on our, you know, our love will become a funeral pyre. Very Jim kind of a thing to say. Right. Um, uh, but uh, this is song is basically, you know, you know, from soup to nuts. It's a Robbie Krieger song. And his guitar solo on that is if you understand the context of where music was in sort of late 1966 when this was recorded, that's out there. That is an incredibly it's it's um his guitar tone on that is piercing and yet clear and actually it sounds and this is a compliment I'm trying to pay to it not an insult it sounds modern it doesn't sound like a 1966 song it doesn't sound like it's you know badly produced or like the amps aren't there you know the production is there and this is again a tribute to Paul Rothschild and Bruce Brockman Botnick. 
Uh, that guitar solo is, I think, one of the highlights of Doors' entire career. Kind of amazing the you know uh they would take a, a song like that uh which you know as we learn works so well as, as a single and go in 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 that break my favorite moment in that song is the pass off from ray to robbie that kind of goes on for a few beats and they did it live it went even longer and it's like they're in no hurry here and i think <laughs> that was um and then the first notes of, of the guitar guitar when they come in it's really exciting it's one of those great moments uh, you know I, I think of like uh the the guitar player in wilco in impossible germany when he plays those first notes mm-hmm. like you know and, and you know wow here's this amazing solo that, 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 that is going to happen um and there's all it really has all the dna of the doors you know you mentioned the dna of blues but these guys listen to a lot of jazz john coltrane was uh, an explicit uh, model for that break. Um, he did a song called Olay, which sort of has the, you know, the, the, the feel to it. And another one, a weird route was his version of my favorite things from the sound of music of all things. Um, and later when they played it live, Robbie would sometimes actually play the melody <laughs> of my, our, these are a few of my favorite things. Right. And, you know, me really waking up some of the stone people in the audience. What's going on here, right? Um, um, and you know, so it has all these different influences, particularly the jazz one and, and Latin, um, blended into the middle of this song where you get Morrison, you know, singing about death, of course, sex and death. Um, and it is something you just not hear, normally hear on the radio in 1967 and probably ever. And let, let me also just say quickly, since everyone else has been talked about, Densmore's contribution during those solos should not be overlooked. Those fills and crashes that sort of uh, add a little spark uh, to the organ solos and even the guitar solos of that big middle portion of the song, Densmore is also a key contributor to Light My Fire. So I, I know, Scott, actually, I'm going to throw the, this hand grenade into your lap. I want you to talk about what I'm sure is maybe one of your top five favorite songs of all time. 
uh, certainly maybe your favorite song by the doors and that of course is uh, i don't want you to spend 11 minutes and 45 oh, seconds on don't it don't do this uh, to me <laughs> <laughs> the end my friend the end the end of uh what is it? it's uh happiness and soft light or something like that i can't remember the exact lyric all i remember is that you know the killer awoke at dawn he put his mask on. He, he, he got a face from the ancient gallery, and he walked on down the hall. <laughs> uh, okay, this is – you know, this was impossible to avoid even before uh, Francis Ford Coppola used it in Apocalypse Now. <laughs> but now we really have to talk about it. So uh, thoughts on this, this massive, weird, Oedipal epic that concludes their debut? Well, I'm I'm going to defend it. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, you know, I th- think you know, sort of as a, an end piece to this, you know, moment in time. Yeah, you know, it was shocking in its in its way, and you could like roll your eyes a little bit about, oh, you know, he, you know, we're living up the Oedipal complex in kind of a vulgar way, and it's shocking. And the <laughs> the legend is that when they played this. The, the whiskey a, a go-go the guy threw them the, the owner threw them out you know um uh f the mother and you know um but it, it, it there's something and i think that's why francis ford coppola seized on it there's something sort of magical to this they you know i think they they do take you somewhere it's a it's a scary song and the thing i i kept thinking when i was replaying this first album is how much in a, in a, a strange way this album, you know, an L.A. album in, in its way, too, um, sort of anticipates Manson, right? And, you know, if you, <laughs> if you think about, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? I'm surprised mm-hmm. that Tarantino didn't use the doors in, in that. Uh, because, you know, uh, while the rest of the L.A. scene was, you know, going flower power, you know, these folks were plugging into that darkness that was, you know, you saw on the Sunset Strip. It's percolating underneath the surface, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think somehow this... All this, the losers and all the people who didn't make it, and then it's all fermenting and getting rotten, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah this channels it. And obviously, there was a lot of LSD that went into the making of this song. Um, and, you know, that was, you know, maybe not in the air, but certainly in the water around that time. And it it, it is, you know... Uh, something that is hypnotizing uh, to, to this to this day that's why it works so well in movies and why i feel that you know I, I i suspect you you folks are going to analyze when the music's over and tell me technically why it's a better song it but, is <laughs> but, but i feel it's like the gravy to you know the ends mashed potatoes the killer awoke before dawn he put his boots on He took a face from the ancient gallery and he walked on down the hall. He went into the room where his sister lived and then he paid a visit to his brother and then he he walked on down the hall And he came to a door And he looked inside Father, 
embarrasses me to realize this is that I, I I now understand that there are bands that I absolutely adore a sort of semi-obscure uh, a British band in particular called Fairport Convention who created basically English folk rock which is different from American folk rock and that so, it actually them live too by the way yeah <laughs> and uh, you like you hear the raga rock you know the or the the, the those runs that Krieger plays on his guitar, like uh, which is you know half English, half Indian, and it is uh, of course something that you end up seeing on you know later music by other bands like A Sailor's Life by Fairport, or you know uh, other other groups that are you know playing these sort of long and semi trad things. And remember, this is when do they finish? When do they record this? October 1966, you know, November, something thereabouts. Yeah, late 66. Yeah, and so like yeah, it came out in like January of 67. But like this is like really ahead of its time. Again, uh, my f- my primary fault of the song is that I d- I-, I don't mind the whole like goofy Jim Morrison lyrical poetic trip. You know, it's it's everybody's got a right to their high school poetry days, and I think actually <laughs> Jim would become better at writing lyrics. Uh, as he went on um so like yes the, uh, the sort of you know, on the nose obviousness of father yes son i want to kill you mother i've always loved this in fact my friends and i in high school would always joke about this mother i want to mm-hmm. and, and by the way this is a song that the remix has done no favors to i don't really think it's improved at all by hearing Jim going like you know f the f the mother <laughs> f the money during that or during that uh you know the the play out near the end of the song, it doesn't that doesn't add anything. It's like ooh oh how how stunning and how it, it's the same thing with um uh with uh, break on through where you know I, it's much better when you hear Jim saying she gets she gets yeah yeah instead yeah. of saying she gets high she gets high she gets and then it gets cut off. That actually kind of leaves you wanting more. You, you, get, you it's intriguing. You're like, well, what, what does she get? <laughs> you know, and if you just spell it out so obviously like that, you lose something in the translation. Which is why some of the original mixes on this album are better than the ones that are, you know, on, on these these most most recent remixes. But yeah, the end is a song that I think again suffers from that that early trio sound. It, it, when they played it live, it, it came alive in a way that it doesn't doesn't feel like it is on this album but man i don't know i i just think that it's it's a little bit too ponderous for its running mm-hmm. length and i guess i guess this is of course scott's favorite song so scott you know no, really want no. you to... i i have nothing more <laughs> than what you guys have said other other than obviously i i am leaning toward jeff's opinion on, on the end it's it's kind of in a way, it's a summation of the things that I, I don't care for about this first album. So making it 11 and a half minutes to close the album doesn't doesn't really change my mind about a whole lot. Well, I, well the, only, the only thing I have to say about it is <clears throat> it sort of introduces the subtext underneath the surface of the entire Doors oeuvre, you know, which is the, you know, um, how Morrison himself is decaying and fading and drawn 
you know, like a moth to the flame of his own death, right? So you listen to this now, you think of the end, you know, you've got to think of that bathtub in Paris that we're, you know, this is the first pull of that. So it adds that poignancy to that. So this is a, this is a guy who played with fire and got consumed. Well, he didn't get consumed just quite yet, though, because here's no, no, the thing no. that happens. Uh, the, the, the first album comes out, Light My Fire goes to number one, massive hit single. And then the Doors realize, OK, now, now we have fame, we have money, we have a budget. Let's do something a little bit more creative. And I think one, ha- one thing that happened to them is that uh, Bruce Botnick gave them an early version, an early uh, an acetate pressing of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which mm-hmm. hadn't been released, uh, I think, at that time in America. I think so that they got it in like you know April or May of 1967, and it didn't come out until June. Uh, and they said, you know what? Let's, let's, let's stretch ourselves. Let's try to go really ambitious here. And what they do with Paul Rothschild, I consider this to be the single greatest achievement of Paul Rothschild's career as a producer, and probably Bruce Botnick's as an engineer, is they record the album Strange Days. Strange days have found us. second album comes out i think in like november or september october of 1967 late 67 Mm -hmm. um this is i think their greatest album i and uh you know i i kind of go back and forth on whether it's this or if it's maybe another one coming up a little later but i am actually this is the one that i came back to uh you know when we were doing this show you know and me as like the guy was like doors are the most overrated band ever bye you know like yeah they suck and then I listened to this thing from front to back, and I thought to myself, there isn't a single song, not one song on this record that I do not like. And there are so many that I am so impressed by. And what I am really impressed by are the little arranging touches on this. There's a song near the end of the album called I Can't See Your Face in My Mind. And I think what Rothschild told the band is, is like, imagine you're in Japan you know in a rock garden or something like that and uh, that's exactly the sound they get out of there's vibes going like do 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 and the most spooky lyric ever sung by jim this is jim in his crooner mode Oh 
One of the funny things about Morrison is that, you know, it, you, people think of him as like, you know, this sexy Dionysian lizard king guy. Who are his two biggest el- influences? Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. Those, those are the guys that Jim Morrison idolized as a singer. And you know what? Honestly, those aren't bad guys to have as your idol. They're two very great singers. So, like, I don't mind. And I kind of like the weirdness of combining that crooning sound over these very dark tracks. Songs like I Can't See Your Face or My Eyes Have Seen You, or Your Lost Little Girl, Unhappy Girl. I really love Strange Days. This is the one that I will not only just defend as like the best of the doors, I'll unironically defend it as a truly great album and a masterpiece. I want to, before we even talk about the music, at least mention the cover. I, this is one of the best covers of the time. I love the cover for Strange Days where you have the, what, the strong man, the... Uh, perhaps a little person, or I don't know if that's a kid, perhaps, the mime, the trumpet player, and in the background, the, the, the Doors poster and the Strange Days right across it. It's a, it's a great, great album cover. Uh, when, you know, at, at times during this period, I don't know how much thought was put into what was on the front of the album, depending on the band, but this is a great cover. Uh, as Jeff mentioned, when you think about the production, the recording on Strange Days, it's really fantastic. This is even more so than the uh, debut where I was able to hear how well this band was recorded by Paul Rothschild and, and company in the studio. Love Me Two Times. The instrumentation is so sharp. It sounds so good. Uh, something like Moonlight Drive. Again, you just hear everything so well. Love me one time. Could not speak. I'm one time, baby. Yeah, my knees got weak. Love me two times, girl. Last week, all through the week. Love me two times. I'm gone away. Love me two times, baby. It's a tremendously well-recorded album. And then again, as Jeff mentioned, you have this dichotomy where a lot of the music here is very lush. Um, it's not, you know, orchestration. That would come later. But uh, it is lush, and yet it is uncomfortable because of the subject matter, because of the arrangements. So you have this very um, uncomfortable feeling when listening to some of the textures uh, on these songs. I think that, uh, you know, Manzarek's Vox sound is, 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 is down a bit on this album. I, I, I think Morrison's vocals are a little I bit more... I actually don't hear it at all. I don't think he's yeah. using the Vox anymore at all. It, uh, even on when the music's over, he's, he's, he's moved over to a Hammond. Yeah, and I, I think overall it's just a more effective use of instrumentation at times uh, on, on Strange Days. Um, I'm not sure I like it quite as much as Jeff does. I certainly wouldn't say it's, it's their best. And, um, but but uh, Moonlight Drive, I think, is, is just a, a great, it's a Robbie Krieger, I think it's a Krieger written track. Um, his work, though, on the slide, just a slinky sound. 
the way the band comes alive just stomps through that final verse of the song, these very sinister vocals and sinister lyrics on Moonlight Drive. It's a clear highlight of Strange Days. Let's Little girl, very haunting ballad okay. of the get. Go, go ahead. Robert Smith should be paying royalties. <laughs> Robert Smith and the Cure should be paying royalties to uh, Jim Morrison and the Doors for your lost little girl. Because if you listen to that song, you know the doom, doom, do 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 that like guitar line that Krieger plays right at the beginning of the thing. That is 17 seconds. It, the, the album, the song, the entire mood of the early Doors <laughs> or the early Cure career. They, they, they clearly, clearly, and of course, the Cure did a cover of a Doors song later on in their career too, for a tribute album, which just tells you all you need to know. But man, I was like, I heard that again. I went back and listened to it again. I was like, this is like, you know, I had listened to this album as a kid. Then I become a Cure fan. Then I went back and I was like, oh crap, that's the Cure. That is totally the Cure. You're lost, little girl You're lost, little girl You're lost, tell me who are you Think that you know what to do Impossible, yes But it's true I think that you know What to do Yeah Sure that you know What to do It's a great song. Uh, Strange Days, the, the title track, uh, listen to Densmore play on Strange Days. He is doing some very unusual patterns, especially towards the end of the song. That is a really interesting song to listen to. And each of these songs, I boy, I don't know if there's a, a standout among them. I don't know if I can say one is so far above the others. Pretty consistent in all, virtually all at least, as I look through my notes are just interesting to listen to, whether it might be picking out, again, a Densmore drum pattern or something done in the recording, or just hearing all those instruments come together uh, under one banner in the course of a song. Uh, Strange Days, as an album, I think works pretty darn well. Dude, I'm the guy who even likes horse latitudes. Yeah, I like, I, I like Jim, I, I like so Jim sure Morrison's script. <laughs> 
I like Jim. I draw the line there. I, no, no, man. I, I want to hear Jimbo screaming about mute nostril agony, my friends. All right. And the way that uh, also he's like, mute nostril agony. And there's like white noise. The band's just like creating chaos behind them. And then it goes into Moonlight Drive. You know, like boom, quiet segue. Yeah. It's clever. If you're going to get like pretentious poetry, you know, like teenage yeah. poetry into an album, that's the way to do it. Minute and a half and then boom into another like you know another guy by the way moonlight drive was that song that jim morrison read to and sang to ray manzarek on that beach in Mm. venice back in 1965 when they first met and they decided to form a band that's the song and uh i just think it's a great a great little one-two punch and yes pretentious sure but i have i have a listen I, i like genesis i like gentle giant i have an appetite for some pretension yeah. So strange days for me. It's funny, you know, as you can imagine, you know, me and my friends greatly anticipated uh, this record. And, you know, when, you know, at least when I got first got my hands on it, like the very first song, Strange Days, there's this echo in Morrison's voice. Yeah. Saying, what, what is that? And it, it took me a while to get used to it. And, and, and re-listening to it now, Jeff, I can see your point. You know, can arguing it sounds better and clearer. That that's it's definitely better produced. But um, I you know again, I'll I'll still rack the first one up there. But but it's still a fantastic album. There's like like you mentioned, I love that segue between Horse Latitudes. Finally, it's over. By the way, and you know into Moonlight Drive. But there's other great touches. You know, we're we're talking a lot about the underratedness of of Robbie Krieger. You know, um, in his uh, solo as a short solo in my eyes have seen you. Um, that is a fantastic solo, right? Um, and some of the solos can really stack up to the classic ones you talk about, like George Harrison and Taxman or Clapton and Sunshine and Your Love. That you know, it's really only a few seconds, but he packs a lot of drama and texture into into that 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 solo. Eyes have seen you. Rise a senior, rise a senior, turn the stair, fetch your hair, move out stairs, move out stairs, Record's full of that kind of stuff. Okay, when you talk about solos, you know, Krieger isn't the only one who gets like remarkable moments on this album. I have to say, this is this is I think the the thing that I appreciate most about coming back to the Doors uh, and being you know sort of compelled to uh, reappreciate them. Uh, Densmore, John Densmore on "When the Music's Over" uh, blows my face off. I have to say it. Uh, "When the Music's Over," the reason I prefer the song to the end, uh, first of all, because it's more of a song. The end is sort of a drone. It's a raga. It's it just goes on and on and on. Uh, "When the Music's Over." is actually a song I, there's there's a hilarious uh, a little bit of dialogue in one of their concerts that has been released in the Bright Midnight series from like 69 or something where they're like you know hey you know should we play they're d- discussing on stage uh, what song they're going to play next you know like hey should we play Soul Kitchen and then like Ray or Robbie <laughs> says like no that that sounds just like when the music's over they're not going to realize it because you know they have that same opening like don't 
dun, 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 ba-da-ba. That's the one critique that you can level against that song. But everything else, including Jim's lyrics. I really like his lyrics about you know having music being your special friend. There's like a lot of great slug lines. Cancel my subscription to the resurrection. Yeah, you know, I don't know what it means in the context of the song, but it boy, it, it sure sounds good when you put it on a poster, doesn't it? Doesn't it, Stephen? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and you know, he was also way ahead of the curve on climate change. Right? <laughs> oh, okay. And that is exactly what have they done to the earth. Okay, this is this is exactly what I was wanting to talk about is that section of the song. When I think about John Densmore as a drummer, you know, you know Jim goes like, What have they done to the earth? What have they done to my beautiful sister or whatever it is? And then you hear John just is like going like he hits these like very, very like jazzy, like, like, like I don't know, these you know, triplets. And uh, he is mm-hmm. improvising beautifully all around this. And it is I think, probably his single greatest drum performance in the entire Doors discography. But here's the most hilarious part about it. Apparently, the band had to record the entire instrumental track alone because mm-hmm. Jim got drunk and or took LSD. You know, I think it was that he took, he was tripping with Pam Corson, his, uh, you know, girlfriend and, you know, uh, you know, uh, common law wife. And they were tripping acid and they couldn't make it to the studio. So the band just had to record this and they just had to hope that Jim would come in and like sort of figure out how to work around it. And it works. It almost feels like a completely live take. Uh, Jim works around the, the incredible drum filigrees that that Densmore is putting into the song, and you know, and at the end when he goes, you know, like we want the world and we want it, ba 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 ba. Now I gotta say, you know, I'm not a teenager anymore, but that still excites me. What have they done to the earth? What have they done to our fair sister? Ravaged and plundered and ripped her and bit her Stuck her with knives in the side of the dawn And tied her with fences and dragged her down I hear a very gentle sound With your ear down to the ground We want the world and we want it We want the world and we want it Now Now I, I'd like to ask you, you, you guys, where do you rate that scream among the great screams of rock and roll? <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, you, your number one's always going to have to be Roger Daltrey. Right. I knew you were going to say that. Well, of course, because it's true. It's, it's like saying, you know, like, it's like saying that the Beatles are the best band of all time. It's just an objective fact. Uh, you know, and there are other ones too. I have weird sort of personal picks. I think Pavement on AT and T from the '90s is kind of like my analog for the '70s. But that's a good one, and that's one that he was. Uh, you know, it, it's very difficult for him to do. Here's the thing about Morrison: he has a nice, thick, you know, thick singing tone, but his voice, his vocal cords were weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, they couldn't stand up to a lot of abuse. 
So he had to really, you know, and, and you hear it sometimes in, in the bad concert recordings when he's either really drunk or he's, he's really, you know, uh, you know, gone off of his, uh, you know, gone off on a big bender and, you know, uh, shot his voice out. Um, uh, you can't do that all the time. But he that never backed down. Good. He always gave it the effort. That's he, the always, he, he always gave the effort. But, you know, that howl on the studio version is pretty good. And I'll, let me just mention uh, about Morrison's vocals. They're, they're better... They're better than I thought they would be. I mean, uh, Jeff mentioned Sinatra as an influence, and especially when he sort of takes on that persona, that that crooner, it, it's a deep, sultry sort of voice. It works very well. He uses it pretty well on a number of you know a variety of of different songs uh, through this album and and the ones to come. I was a little surprised going back through. Uh, the catalog, as I did in in preparing, how much I just enjoyed his voice at various times. It's it's, it's stronger than I thought it would be. Well, I mean, I th- that's a pretty great excuse to for you to cue up the next record, which I know you like a heck of a lot more than I do. Yeah, I I don't know where "Waiting for the Sun" uh, sort of lands on on the rankings of, of best Doors albums by Doors fans, uh, but I know Jeff is not a, a giant fan of it. So this is. July of 68, a little less than a year after Strange Days. And I, I, I this is say, what happens when you run out of that, that, that bag full of correct. songs that you've been right. growing for the last two years. And yet, as, as Jeff mentioned, I, I think this is a pretty darn good album. I would take it over Strange Days, I think. I, I think Waiting for the Sun is, is awfully strong. Um, the it sort of has a mellower feel across the board, I would say. Um, I, I do like in many places that the vocals are a little more restrained uh, from Morrison. One of my favorite tracks on this album, and one of my favorite Doors tracks overall, is is Love Street. Uh, I, I, I like that kind of subdued, laid back vocal performance that Morrison delivers. There's a wonderful relaxed piano solo it just sort of it goes perfect with the melody this sort of baroque pop and the and the and the shots sometimes that uh was i i see you live on love street uh, uh, uh there's the store where the creatures meet i wonder what they do in there uh love street is is a highlight for me So Good Together was one that was recorded for Strange Days and held back for Waiting for the Sun. It sort of sounds like a, a cast-off from Strange Days, but the way that Morrison's vocals sort of slink along the melody, uh, the rough guitar sound on the chorus, and a, a pretty freaky solo from Krieger on We Could Be So Good Together, that, that's, a, that's a great song on Waiting for the Sun. Uh, My Wild Love, uh, I think, is all right. You know, it's not all... 
not all ten out of tens on on waiting for the sun, I, I suppose. Uh, summer's almost well, gone. Wait, well, what about Go- what about the, you know the, the big hit number one hit single from this album, uh, All Day and All, all the, the Night? night yeah. The yeah, yeah, yeah. They're only number one song, and they they had to kick back royalties to Ray Davies, right? <laughs> it would make sense because Hello, I Love You. If again, it's in your head, uh, will sound remarkably similar to his. All day mentioned. and all of the night. Absolutely. Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? It's it's the same. I, I had read the riff. Hello. I, I, that's that's not my favorite Doors song by you know like a very very long shot. I don't I don't I don't I don't like Hello I Love You. And, you know, I, I think the album itself is really uneven. I do like Love Street, even though it's arguably even more treacly. But um, <laughs> yeah, the, the break is great. It was supposedly this Canyon store in Laurel Canyon, where you know he and Pam Corson lived across the street. And in a way, it's a sort of like stiletto to those you know hippies who, who lived in, in Laurel Canyon and you know and you know with the flower pots, you know Graham Nash and Joni Mitchell and you know and the the cool kids that um, you know, they really didn't even let the Doors into their big concert in Monterey, even though they had the number one song. So they they, they were sort of snub there um my uh you know the favorite song in there for me is five to one i mean that that to me is one of the best doors songs um it's like the solid anthem which kind of goes over embarrassing ground in a not embarrassing way and you know it gets the theme again no one here gets out alive um it's a very strong vocal and like a sizzling guitar and again densmore kind of owns the song right and it's got this some great lines in there trading your hours for a handful of dimes um yeah it's a, a, a really you know iconic doors song there and i think probably the best one on the album but I, I i've always objected <laughs> at least at a on a uh, an intellectual level to that lyric in five to one where he says like they've got the guns but we've got the numbers so i was like well you actually know <laughs> to, to be perfectly honest jim they have both the guns and the numbers <laughs> so like you know this is kind of a losing bet <laughs> but i yeah the the re- to, to, to analyze it on that level is to completely miss the point. It, the, the, the rebel uh, spirit of that song actually does still hand up. And the funny thing about it is that this is that was a song that was basically, like a lot of these songs, was basically bluffed out in the studio, right? So like, Hello, I Love You, that one was a really old, and that was on their first demo, actually, from like September of 1965, when, yeah, yeah. when All Day and All the Night was still like a new hit, <laughs> right? So like, that's how you know it was truly based on that song. Um, but uh, like, Five to One, they're just like jamming. And the Doors and Jim were actually pretty good at kind of finding songs and putting things together just through jamming. And, you know, you know, you get you get that dens more that that just elemental thunk, da funk, bonk, bonk, 
bonk, bah, bonk. That's one of the uh, reasons why that song reminds me uh, a lot of the, of the White Stripes, that menacing, thumping bass that was still it, present it, in the White Stripes music. Because you know Densmore obviously technically is capable of all sorts of like more yeah, complex yeah. stuff, but man, you just sometimes sometimes you just find that completely like you know gut like caveman groove, <laughs> and you ride it, and that's that's the way that that song works. And, and then Krieger has such a great kind of a palette with which to paint over it with his guitar solo on it. You know, he just goes crazy on it because you you have such space when it's just like you know that that rata bada bada bad a drum beat there's there's nothing else taking up the space or filling the sound with it um but yeah i have to say i think this is a weak album uh the, of course the story of, of waiting for the sun is as i mentioned earlier is like this is what happens when the band runs out of the song strange days and the doors the two first albums were like basically their their entire writing and playing repertoire you know that they've been working on since 65 into 67 uh, and so they used all those songs, and they threw in a couple of other ones too. But then they found themselves basically, uh, we're on the top of the world, we're a hit band, and we don't really have much. So yeah, they, they resurrect a couple old ones. Summer's almost gone. Waiting uh, and uh, Hello, I Love You. They go on the album, but then what do you do? And uh, I don't really think they do a really good job. I think, of course, the you know the the thing that they were supposed to do for this album, what they wanted to do, and thank God that they didn't do it. Oh yeah, was this yeah. <laughs> sidelong mess called the celebration of the lizard? Uh, you know, is Jim Morrison's uh, poet epic? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm making a hand jack in motion here because it's so weird. It's so bad. It's so like sort of kind of gawky and I, I think i made a joke on twitter that uh, if uh you know the joke that randy newman once made about a uh, horse with no name by america <laughs> is that it's a song about a kid who thinks he's taken lsd well uh, celebration of the lizard is a song written by a kid who thinks he understands french symbolist poetry but he doesn't because it's just so uh, everything about it is wrong the, the the reissue of the album has the, their their studio version of it the demo and it just fails in every way so what do they do they they uh they 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 took off the one 
sort of song-like component yeah. of it, which is Not to Touch the Earth. <laughs> and I'll kind of admit there are moments on Not to Touch the Earth I do sort of enjoy. Like, it, you know, it, there's, you know, the run with me. Yeah. That's actually a pretty decent hook. And, of course, who, who can who can not fail to laugh at the end of the song where Jim Morrison, famously for the ages says that line that will trail him uh, through eternity, which is I am the Lizard King. <laughs> I can do anything. And then Manzarek's organ goes snap! <laughs> and you're like, ah, well, I'm really glad I didn't have to listen to all 17 minutes of this. We should be I think another low point, you know, uh, you know, uh, is the uh, the unknown soldier. You know, uh, this is a song they have been talking about for a long time. Was supposed to be a movie, um, and uh, it, it finally appears. And it really is an awful protest song. Um, it's, it's kind of a film school grads version of a protest school song, right? Um, you know, where they act out and then this tired trope of, you know, the, the rat tat tat, you know, uh, military cadence of a drumming. And, as, know, a rule, as, a rule, as a rule, Stephen, just don't put sound effects into your songs. <laughs> never, it well, never uh, works. The rule can get broken, as we'll learn later on. Yeah, right. I was on the storm, right? Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, but. <laughs> But this is not all quiet on the Western front here is a, a great anti-war song. It, it really is like dumb and, and pedestrian and, and, and juvenile. And you think about all the great protest songs that were uh, happening there and, you know, and, and the anti-war movement and the doors fell way short. Yeah, you, you think about this compared to Fortunate Son, and it doesn't really measure <laughs> yeah. up, right? Yeah, but yeah. and especially since like the Doors are sort of the unofficial theme music to the Vietnam War, so it's particularly disappointing. Right. They're, the the ones actually on this album that I do like that really do like you know hold on for me are, are like the weird, bizarre cameos. Like you know, there's a song uh, on the first side. It's like it's less than two minutes long. It's called Wintertime Love. I really like that song, and it's it's baroque. It, it is basically Ray Manzarek just working out baroque music here. And at the end of it, you know, Jim is crooning. It's a crooning song. Winter time, love grows cold this season. And he probably thought these lyrics were just like yeah, throwaway stuff. But then Ray goes into that nice little baroque kind of Bach-like solo at the end, and you know, and Jim is going like, oh, he's he's he's, he's moaning and crooning on it. And I gotta say, it's like you know what I'm make a compilation of the doors that one will make it onto it
That's a. I'm not getting your compilation. I, I really don't like that song. You really I like, don't like it? I, 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 I feel listen. I, you know what? We, we all have different tastes. Someone's almost gone. I like. You know, and that, that's what, again one of his early songs. But the wintertime love is like dancing and you know waltzing. And I like it later on when they say your ballroom days are over, which you know should have wakened them up to realize wintertime love shouldn't be on the record. So if you don't like wintertime love, then maybe you're not going to like the other song that I was going to single out, which is Uh-oh. Spanish Caravan. I I'm really, okay. I'm okay with that. Cause Robbie gets to use his flamenco chops. Right. Okay. See, that's, that's the thing, you know, like this is just a guitar showcase really, you know, and also there's that sort of flaming hot electric, uh, zoo, uh, I guess fuzz quasi fuzz bass mm-hmm. thing going on with it too. But yeah, I love just, you know, any excuse for Robbie Krieger to let loose and just blow the doors off, which he does. On that on that song, you know, it, Jim's lyrics really don't matter on this song. You know, carry me, caravan, take me away. You know, it doesn't really matter, but it's about the guitar on that, and I think it's actually pretty good. This to me has always been, you know, this actually, I was about to say this, but actually, it's the next one. These two are the real dip in the Doors discography, which I guess we have to start first by saying what happens after Waiting for the Sun. Well, you know, here's the thing about Jim Morrison it's easy to characterize him as just like some sort of uh, a punk, uh, to be blunt, an asshole, right? Uh, I'm drunk, I'm nobody, I'm drunk, I'm famous, I'm drunk, I'm dead. But I think there were actually more important or more interesting things going on with him. He was really uncomfortable with fame. He he, he felt it was artificial. He, he said, like, well, I was just some guy, and now <clears throat> people are treating me like some sort of rock god, and, you know, women are throwing themselves at me. And I just I, I look out. Again, this is a line I, I quote a lot on the show. It's a great line from Mick Jagger on, on uh, Salt of the Earth for the, by the Rolling Stones, where I look out into that faceless crowd, the seas of blacks and whites. Now, I, it, it doesn't look real to me. It all looks so strange. That's the way that Jim Morrison clearly felt about fame. He was very, very ambivalent with it. He did not like the idea that he was being treated as like some sort of not human person. And so he, he sort of descended into both drinking and drugs, but also increasingly provocation, uh, provocation, prov- uh, behavior on stage. And of course, this all culminates in early March of 1969. The most famous incident in the Doors' career uh, where he is uh, playing in Miami, Florida at the uh, Dinner Key Auditorium, I believe it is. And they're doing five to one or something like that. And he is just absolutely blasted drunk. 
And then you know, he screams, you know, he's like, yeah, you're all, you, you can hear it. It's the opening song on that box set I mentioned earlier. He's just, he's like, you're all a bunch of effing losers. You, you're all slaves. You're all morons. And then he, he, he the, of course, he was prosecuted for public indecency because the argument was that, that he whipped his, you know, his uh, junk out on stage and showed it to the audience I don't actually think that he did that. I take the word of the other members of the band that that's not what happened, that that he just faked it. Uh, it was just, a, you know, basically a provocation. But, of course, then, of course, they get hit with massive lawsuits. Then they're not allowed to play for a long time as well. And the whole sort of band collapses because of this lawsuit and because of the fact that there's a possibility that Jim could be going to jail, which, you know, in, indeed he might have actually have gone to jail if he had lived. Um, and that kind of leads us to this muddled era that sends us to the soft parade. Well, just one comment on that. It was only a few years later, the Rolling Stones did a tour with Mick Jagger riding on a giant Thales, <laughs> right? So you think about you know, how it, it was. The, it was the the Love You Live Black and Blue tour. Yes, it's yeah, yeah. Pretty so pathetic. You think, you think about you know it. It's so it seems so quaint that they would so you know, just the thought of Jim Morrison whipping it out would require a jail term. That you know. Uh, it, it sort of speaks to that era and the craziness that the doors were generating and the fear that this group was generating among the establishment. So I, I don't know if we want to hold it off to talk about live, but you know, when I saw them first in 1968 in this uh, arena that they did wrestling matches in, in uh, Philadelphia, um, they weren't good. Uh, it was a messed up concert to begin with. There were uh, the, the promoter was kind of a rookie and he sold too many tickets and um, it, it was really late before they took the stage. But uh, and they started with when the music's over, which was was great. But then I knew we were in trouble when he said, you know, he sort of stumbled and said, I am the keeper of the royal sperm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he spent a good deal of the concert actually on the ground, you know, um, and, it, you know, they, they did some good stuff in there. They, they, were, they were promoting um, uh, the Waiting for the Sun record and, you know, it had its moments. And um, but it was a, a short and not sweet concert that was really unsatisfying. Um, and you could see where he was headed in this. It was just one of those concerts. And he did a lot of them there where he was drunk and just did not deliver um he's not like bruce springsteen that you know <laughs> i'm going to give the audience whatever it wants um you know uh it's like jim come out and there's time after time when in the history of the doors where the three of them are playing and they're saying what the hell is this guy going to do next right and you know just dreading it and you know uh that was like the low point and i, I guess when we'll come back to absolutely live i'll talk about how much better the performances were in 1970. I will say this, though. I am very glad that, that, that when Jim Morrison d decided to do this antic that, that got the doors you know, prosecuted, that got Jim you know, threatened with jail time, that he did it in Florida, in Miami, because cause now we can claim that Jim Morrison is also another Florida man. <laughs> because Although he the, was the, uh... he from Florida, right? Florida man whips out penis on yeah, stage. Yeah. <laughs> he was commuted, or he, he had that. He was given a pardon or whatever, right? A couple of years ago for the for, that, for the really? Charlie Crist pardoned him. Yeah. Yes, yeah. when he was governor, that. right? Wow. 
All right, but this brings us to the soft parade. And this is an album I think we all agree, and everybody agrees. It's like, this is kind of like the what the hell happened album for the Doors. It, this is the one where Paul Rothschild came to them and said, like, you know what? Maybe we'll, let's try some strings and some horns and let's, let's tart it up a bit. Um, it, which is not necessarily a terrible idea. It works on Touch Me. Which I is agree, a song. I agree. Yeah. Everybody, every all the all the hardcore Doors fans affect to hate that song, no. right? But I, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, from from the minute that Jin starts the song by going, that's you know, fantastic. I, I love that Yelp. It's just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that Yelp, and then you know, come on, come on, come on now, and you know, it's a great song. It it, it deserved its hit single status. It's clearly the best song in this album. But so much of the rest of this thing is just. Uh, it's 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 a band that feels like it felt like they were just running on fumes and this was the end because they had no other ideas or inspiration uh i actually i don't want to spend too much time on it because all i would do is just like joke about how much i hate <laughs> shit like tell all the people or like do, or do it. it do it might be the worst song <laughs> tell, they tell, tell all the people was so bad that you know um that even morrison was repelled by it and said let's change the way we do song credits right. before right. everything was the credited to the doors but you know when he realized he had to sing tell all the people he said well actually we should do individual credits because i don't <laughs> want my name on this yeah i, I think it was like i think funny thing about jim is that he, he wasn't like nuts he was like it was the line where he was like you know go get your guns and he was like, no, I'm not going to sing that. Oh, crap, I have to sing that? Well, I'm not going to take responsibility for that. <laughs> that song, it's like kind of like Neil Diamond Vegas kind of thing, right? Yeah. You know, you have a big um, voice and, you know, uh, you know, the Wayne Newton almost at something. And we're like, it reminded me, just the whole album reminded me of like Phil Spector doing that Len Leonard Cohen album, right? Did you remember that one? Where yeah. Where brought the horns and the big production to, to Leonard Cohen. It, it, you know, but... You know, again, I agree with, with with you. I'm happy to hear both of you agree that "Touch Me" weirdly works it's, uh, from start to finish. There's not a second I don't love of "Touch Me" from the start to the Yelp to the overheated vocals that to that sax player that sax solo. Chorus. Yep, Densmore's drumming that you know the the the, the beat of the whole thing. The dun dun dun. That sax solo that ends it right. That sax solo is that that King Curtis style. Like uh, yeah. you, gotta, you know, it makes you think maybe like almost like Clarence Clemens on the E Street Band, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a great yeah. little sax solo that all works. And then I mean, they end it by singing like "Stronger Than Dirt," which is like I believe <laughs> yeah, like yeah. the Mr. Clean. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I love that ending. It sounds like they're going to fade, right? It sounds like there's the, the thing they're just going to turn down the dials and fade. Then they give that bam, 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 bam. It's just really satisfying. Trivia point: The sax player was married to Murray Clayton. Oh, who, oh. who sang on uh, sang on uh, "Give Me Give Shelter," Shelter, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yes. I mean, okay, so like they're they're 
again, I could spend so much time just clowning on this album, but I have to one and and Scott, I'm warning you now, we are going to inflict the clip on people. There's a song here called Runnin' Blue. Oh, it's a Krieger oh. song. Yeah. Oh, you know, oh, poor Otis is dead. It's about, you know, Otis Redding dying. Which is and, and so the first half of the song is like a really misbegotten attempt at soul. <laughs> which the doors that you know, they could play blues, but they could not play soul. And then uh, for reasons I still to this day do not understand, it turns into this weird like bluegrass, bluegrass. country yeah. thing. And I'm like, oh my god, there are like banjos. There are banjos and there's a fiddle and there's like I think it's Manzarek or Krieger singing instead of Jim. Mm. Jim was always just like peace out I'm, I'm gonna go like get drunk i'm not gonna sing on this thing it's the worst song in the entire doris discography uh and it was released as a single <laughs> because i have no idea why all right not quite the walking blues don't fight too much to lose can't fight the running Real Marcus, who actually wrote a whole book, you know, not too long ago about about the Doors, and you know, he was a big fan. He had the you know the, the comment about poor Otis dead and gone, and you know, you know, and Jim's left to carry on. He said, just said as if, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I got to tell you this though, Stephen. You know, when I was back in my days back in seminary school, there was a man who put forth <laughs> a proposition that you can petition the Lord with prayer. You can petition the Lord with prayer. You cannot petition the Lord with prayer. Of course, it's, that's the title track. That's the soft parade. And, and actually, I will not lie. I like that part because it's just, it's cheese. It, uh, me, me, me too. And then the, 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 the intro is kind of like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Right, right. right. If you sort of pick that up. But, but the, the whole thing is... You know, I mean, to me, as a condemnation of straight life, I'll just go back to trade your hours for a handful of dimes. They said it better in one line than that whole song. Yeah, this is just a mess. And gosh, Scott, if you have like a thought, if you want to, you want to throw an imprecation in here, you can do it. But other than that, I want to move on to much happier days for the Doors. No, I'd only be talking about the songs I don't like, and um, I, I think "Do It" is about the worst. I, I know that that "Red and Blue" is also that chorus just kills <laughs> everything, but "Do It" is terrible too. Please, please, I, listen I to agree. The two. I, I do think it's that awful. And the, the low bar that's underground. 
I mean, it's it's like, how did this happen? And then, of course, you you say, how did this happen for for the soft parade? But then, when you when you look at what came afterwards, you also kind of have to say to yourself, well, how did this happen? Because what comes after the soft parade, which you would would have thought might have been the doors petering out to a sad and miserable end, is Morrison Hotel. And I think that this, if it, if it's not Strange Days, then this is the other one that you can easily say is the greatest Doors album of all time. I don't know where they got it together. I don't know what they decided to do. I don't know if they, they had an intervention with Jim and then they said, hey, come on, get your crap together. <laughs> Let's do this. Um, but Morrison Hotel is an album that is both pretentious and humble, which is a really neat trick to thread, right? It's called Morrison Hotel, right? Morrison. They, they found some like like sleazy dive hotel you know, in like the bad burned out part of LA that was called the Morrison Hotel. And I was like, well, hey, we got to take a picture here. Isn't that the original, the the original Hard Rock Cafe or something like that? Right, exactly. And that's where the name, you know, the Hard Rock Cafes, everyone knows it as that silly franchise, right? Well, it comes from this album. The first side of the album is is subtitled Hard Rock Cafe. The second second side is subtitled Morrison Hotel. I think both sides are fantastic. But uh, the first second you put on this record, and you hear those opening thunk 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 chords of Roadhouse Blues, you know that something has changed much for the better with this band. comeback that you couldn't have expected it's not like morrison cleaned up his act um but he put in the time you know that the he was writing the lyrics for almost every song here and um and it just starts off with i think one of the best doors songs ever which is roadhouse blues um it's a blues um but it also manages to envelope the apocalyptic themes of the band itself. So it really points to a direction um, that the Doors can go in to be both true to their roots 
and innovative and not so blustery. The, the, the amazing thing about that song, the blues, and by the way, they did a smart thing by replacing uh, Morrison, who wasn't a very good harp player, with John Sebastian. Yeah, right. And the Love and Spoonful. The Love and Spoonful, yeah. Yeah, yeah, who, you know, uh, is a, a, the great harp hard player um you know uh but it and, and then it, it, after some of the blues verses um you know he winds up this little period where he speaks in tongues i don't know whether ever lyrics for that but then he kind of goes into an improvisation which is a, a more controlled version of the long monologues in the warhorse songs you know the end and uh when the music's over and it just like encapsulates it in just like one moment when he just like screams save our cities you know and it's like where the heck did that come from right but it it, it evokes that you know uh excitement when you know he like goes off script uh, in, 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 in those songs and it, it, it sort of folds into the song and then he goes into the, the, that great last verse right where you know like I woke up this morning got myself a beer and you know kind of repeats it and then he says the future is uncertain and the end is always near and to be able to so let it roll baby roll. to be able to fold in that vision that scary the end is coming vision that dark you know doors like you know, saga which you know everyone knows ends in the bathtub in paris um, not too much longer uh, a- a- after that you know i think it's an amazing achievement and the song rocks like crazy i mean i i think it's uh it's it's no knock on jim morrison as a lyricist as a songwriter for me to say that that last line that you just cited, Stephen, you know, uh, future is uncertain, but the end is always near. Uh, that's the best lyric he ever wrote. <laughs> I think, I think that, that is that is the one, especially in the context, that's a, which is produced so well. It sounds so dirty, yeah. but it's so yeah. clear. Um, that is uh, in the context of that dirt, gritty, gut bucket blues. Ah, oh, yeah. Every time you hear it. As I said, you know, you might not like the doors, but if you don't like this song, then you just let your bias cloud your mind. There's a couple of those on Morrison Hotel, which I believe to be The Doors' best album. Not without criticisms, which I'll love to hear in a moment, but uh, I think Morrison Hotel is the best that they were, uh, and especially on the first side. One of my critiques is I think side two is not quite as strong, but get to that in a moment. Roadhouse Blues just sounds so dirty. It's wonderfully recorded again, Paul Rothschild is producing and 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 they have the same engineer working and, and they get just wonderful tones uh fr- from the band it, it's just a wonderfully recorded song john sebastian plays harmonica lonnie mack plays bass and so you have some real pros real pros working on roadhouse blues along with the band 
Uh, and of course, Morrison shouting, do it, Robbie, do it, is a marvelous part of Roadhouse Blues. We have to discuss uh, a song that I believe that both Jeff and I think to be, um, well, I, I will. I, I think it's the best song The Doors ever recorded. And I okay, think- before you say a word, I want to I know, Scott, this is a question for you, because we are, of course, are, are children of the 80s and the early 90s. Did you first encounter this song as a brand of, I guess, clothing and or like gear in you know your local shopping mall? No, because that is no. The, all, when I was living in Washington D.C. in the D.C. area in Montgomery, went to Montgomery Mall, all that you would ever find, you know, like everyone wanted to sell you Peace Frog gear. Look it up. It's a thing. The way I was introduced to the song, as uh, as happens with me sometimes, is uh, I, we had a we had a radio show called uh, Vintage Rock on the college radio station. It meant that I I had to play some Doors, and, and even back then I was not the biggest <laughs> fan. So I go through and, and try to find some songs that I actually kind of liked uh, to play from the Doors. And not only did I like this one, I loved this one. And then I think it was was it was on it was on a soundtrack for a Sandler movie at some point. It might have been The Water Boy. So it got a little more attention at that point. But yes, yes, Peace Frog. I, I, oh boy, I think Peace Frog is the best thing they ever they ever recorded um, f- from top to bottom. Lyrically, you know, Morrison, blood on the streets, the town of Chicago and Venice and L.A. and of course New Haven, where he was also uh, arrested by cops a couple of years earlier uh, during or during or just before performance. This is recorded so well. Those fi- first fifteen seconds or so, right? Krieger's got that guitar going. It's a Robbie. Krieger. This whole song is the Robbie Krieger story in, yes. in song. Yeah, you're right. Like the and then also that guitar solo where he he's yeah. uh he's, he's overdubbing himself there too so you get that final cascade up <laughs> the line where it's like there's there must be three guitars playing simultaneously but, right because i've heard them do it live and it yeah. doesn't sound like that believe me oh my god it's so good but the beginning too you go from that from that riff into densmore's beat on the drum kit that prominent bass groove comes in then the organ then the vocals one by one everything enters uh, I love the way the guitar and the organ sort of answer each other dur- during parts of the song. They're talking to each other. This is so good. Even the spoken word part from Morrison. Indians in- shattered right. on dawn's highway bleeding. Ghosts crowd a young child's fragile eggshell mind. I remember that from the age <laughs> of 15. Scott, I didn't even have to look that one up, yeah. man. That shit is stuck you know, in it- my head.
scattered on dawn's highway bleeding Ghosts crowned the young child's fragile eggshell mind Blood in the streets in the town of New Haven Blood stains the roofs and the palm trees of Venice Blood in my love in the terrible summer Bloody red sun of fantastic L.A. Yeah, it's interesting. There's this genre of song that's sort of autobiographical about the group, like like the Mamas and Papas Creek Alley or the Grateful Dead's Truckin'. And of course, the Doors had to have some blood in theirs, right? Um, but I agree. Right. It's, it's a really good song. I, I would not go as far as to say it's, it's their best song ever, but definitely one of the better songs on this very good album. I mean, I love the way that it also fades into Blue Sunday, mm -hmm. uh, which is this very sort of sedate, mellow ballad. It's Jim singing about Pam, Pam Corson, clearly. You know, I, I met my love on a blue Sunday. Um, and it's again, short, brief. The whole thing, the whole suite, uh, you combine them, it's like maybe a tick over five minutes long. This is them really editing themselves. Uh, and I think everything I love about this album is them both knowing how to edit themselves, but also just how to have fun. There are some goofy songs on this record. <laughs> okay? Like, Ship of Fools is this sort of jazzy thing. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's this sort of quasi, you remember Wooden Ships by uh, Jefferson Airplane, Crosby, Stills, sure. Nash, right? Well, this is the Doors version of it. You know, the human race was dying out. Bah, bah, and then Ray is playing these bizarrely cheerful chords. Bah, yeah. bah, da, bah, da, bah. But I love it. It's just a really cheerful chipper song. But even Better than that is Lan Ho and the second side. This is Scott says he doesn't like the second side of this album as much as the first side. I like both of them just as much. I love Lan Ho because, man, who would have thought that Jim Morrison, serious poet Jim Morrison, would just write a song about salty tars? You know, <laughs> pirates sailing the high seas, you know. I've got three ships and 60 men accorsed for ports in red. I'll stand at mast, let the north winds blow till half of us are dead. Land ho! He doesn't sing it like that. I, I, I promise you, he does not sing it in a Scottish, <laughs> a really poor Scottish brogue. But man, it's just like from the opening, like the do 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 Manzarek really kind of killing it, I guess. Say on the arrangement, you know, the left hand, right hand, you you, you get that sort of keyboard bass riff, and then 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 the the, the cheerful, you know, uh, you know, uh, Hammond organ sound. I just I, I love the fact that at the end, you know, near the end of his career, Jim was kind of mellowing out. You know, he wasn't he wasn't writing songs about you know Oedipus complexes and you know like you know the meaning of life. It's like here here's a song about sailing the high seas. You know what? Why? Because it's fun. That's why. Land ho!
And then, then there's the not fun and sad and very affecting song to me, Queen of the Highway. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really a disturbing song. It's, it's a look by Morrison at a distance describing himself and his girlfriend in, in the third person. And says, no one can save her, save the blind tiger. He was a monster, black dress and leather. Um, you know, describing himself in the third person and then talking about, well, they get married, they're naked children. And, you know, um, but you could tell that this is a doomed relationship, the way he describes it. And in the end, he says, like, I hope it can continue for a little while. Um, uh, I, I find this heartbreaking, this song. I mean, I actually always have preferred the jazzy version of it, which was, I think, first released on the box set. You can get it as a bonus track now on the album if you buy the real release. Uh, but where Jim is, again, doing his sort of Frank Sinatra thing. You know, she was a mistress, queen of the highway. Um, I really like that one uh, as, a, as an arrangement better than this, this more rocked up version. But yeah, it's dark and it's sad. And... The fact that they didn't go with the jazz version of Queen of the Highway is, I think, interesting because, you know, I guess one of the, they thought it would be too out of place on this album, which is mostly blues focused. But then again, that makes me wonder why they went with Waiting for the Sun, which, again, there's an album, Waiting for the Sun, yeah. but, the, but the song, Waiting for the Sun, didn't come out until Morrison Hotel. And that kind of makes you wonder why they held it off for that long, because it's one of the best songs on this record. It's also one of the ones that sounds most out of place. This sounds mm-hmm. like it's a Strange Days era song, right? Those 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 glistening arpeggios you know on the keyboard and the guitar from Manzarek and Krieger but uh, I really do love the sort of it's almost this is 1970 when this is being released but it does feel like a throwback to 1967 in a really good way I really love uh, that that initial verse chorus verse move on that song
Side two, I uh, again, I, I think side two is slightly weaker. Indian summer. I know Jeff likes the melody, but the lyrics don't do it for me at all. I love you the best. More it's than a, it's an outtake from it's their older. first album. It's That's older. why. Yeah. yeah, and I think the reason why they didn't use it before is because you know Krieger in the raga mode sounds like he's practicing for the end. Yeah, that, that, that's actually a really good point because like, you couldn't you couldn't have put both of those songs mm. on the album because it would have been too repetitive. I like Indian Summer, but you know, Scott, you know, you you, you have a right to your your poor decisions. <laughs> and I like the Spy. I like the Spy on side too. Uh, kind of a jazzy nightclub feel to it. It's a it's a unique song. Uh, Morrison's reserve but stinging vocals and sort of walking that line between love and obsession, although mostly obsession. I'm yeah, a spy. Sting was, taking, Sting was taking notes. Yeah. I know everyone you right, know. Yeah. I know your deepest secrets. I mean, that's that's the whole motif of the spy, but I, I like the way they pull off that song. I know the word that you I mean, I think this is a triumph for the band, and, and it was again just sort of unpredictable when you you saw what what the trajectory was, especially for me. If like you didn't like waiting for the sun, you could just see like well down, 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 down. What up, up, up to their best ever, and then what comes next actually is something that that is usually glossed over, but I I don't think should be. They released their their only official live album during their career as a band. Uh, it's called Absolutely Live, and it's it's one of those things that you might think would be really easy just to pass over because, like, who cares about a Doors live album? Well, I'm actually going to be the guy to make an argument that you should care about a Doors live album because, as it turns out, the Doors were a really hot live band, and very different from what you would have thought if you just listened to the studio material. You think of them in the studio – you think of all these very arty tracks. You think of all this, you know, very kind of composed and, you know, arranged stuff. Uh, when they were live, yes, there was always those those cases where Jim would come out completely blotto and, you know, lie down on the stage as poor Stephen had to witness in, in one of his first <laughs> concert experiences. Uh, but then on a, on a good night, and in, 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 particularly given the nights that were recorded for this this concert album, uh, they would rip stuff up. They would play tons of covers. They'd play unreleased original songs. Uh, Jim would actually, you know, on a good night, would be very kind of, you know, very congenial, you know, talking with the audience, laughing with them, having fun with them, sort of making, even even making fun of his own past travails. You know, he would be like, hey, you guys don't want me to whip it out here, do you? Mm. Like, you know, he, he would joke about it. Um, you can hear a lot of this on Absolute Live. You can hear a lot more of it if you go buy all of the archival live releases, which I actually have. And I have to admit, like, I've been really enjoying listening to recently. But, I, uh, you know, for a, a record that's sort of like you know, it's it's product for the label, it's a double album in 1960 or 1970. 
I think Absolutely Live holds up with the exception of that stupid celebration of the lizard thing that ends. <laughs> but if you want to, I actually think that you know if you're going to have one live album, yeah, maybe since you're encyclopedic, Jeff, you could tell us which one. But one of the complete concerts, I think, actually works better. I saw right. the 1970s show in Philadelphia that was recorded. Right, that. and part of part of it is on Absolutely Live. You might, yeah. you might yourself, your voice cheering might yeah. be there on the thing. He was at that least is, being told that, to that get on the really aisles. Awesome. I have to say, it was a fantastic concert. And he, they started with Roadhouse Blues, and you can imagine. I mean, to my yardstick for a great live album is if you listen to a cut and you think, I really wish I had been there to hear that live. You know, I mean, you know, how great would it have been in that audience? Let me tell you, 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 my previous experience was not great in the Doors Live, and um, yeah, but of course I rushed to get my, pay my six dollars for that ticket, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm there in the spectrum. They start out with Roadhouse Blues, and yeah, this is it, man. And they did a great concert with two encores. Um, yeah, he was affable. Um, he was jumping around. Um, that wasn't the case in my. When I saw them at the Isle of Wight, um, where they came on at two in the morning, um, and he basically—I think anybody who has to play at two in the morning is probably going to be pretty grumpy. But actually, it was uh, musically a really, really strong concert uh, because that—that that you could also get it as as a separate release. So if you hear that, you really can't tell. But but the first one was great because it, it did have that edge of you don't know what he's going to do next. But he was affable and he he got through the whole thing and and sang with passion and you know really it was one of the you know in a series of great concerts in that few year period it was it was one of the better ones i've seen i think one of the things that has to be i guess i would like at least to stipulate about morrison it's that it, we have this sort of legend of him again oliver stone probably played a huge role in this uh, as being a huge jerk you know, this drunken oaf and this buffoon who, who, you know, just sort of, you know, careened through life and didn't really think about what he was doing. Morrison actually seems to have been a fairly generous person, um, particularly with his bandmates. Like he wasn't like you know, this. He, there are lots of stories of, of rock and roll, you know, bands where like the lead singer you know, or the songwriter you know, gets a big head and thinks that they're better than the rest of them. And, you know, just was like, ah, I don't need you guys. That wasn't really Morrison's story. 
Morrison actually really, really, he loved and he respected. He knew he needed Krieger, Manzarek, mm-hmm. and Densmore. He knew he, that, these, that we, were, we were better together than we are apart. There was never any idea of like Jim Morrison, like, I'm going to go start a soul career. No, he understood. Like, you know, that how he valued his friends and he valued his bandmates. And I think that that, to me, kind of ends up being the story of L.A. Woman, which is an album that it, it, it doesn't make my top two. Uh, but I think it's a really good record, actually, a really good record. And it's a humble record and a pretentious record because, you know, hey, how can it not be a Doors record and be pretentious, right? Um, but it, it's it's them going really kind of really deeply into their blues and their pop roots. And this is Morrison basically just saying, like, listen, let, let's let's make this work. I'm really excited about this music. You know, he's obviously still so troubled. But I actually feel like, uh, ironically enough, for the last album that the Doors, as a four-piece band, were ever put together, there's there's more of a spiritual togetherness on this record than there would ever be on any other other ones. Uh, it's almost like you know he he's not even doesn't care about the fame and all the stupid you know background noise anymore. He's just sort of like having fun in the studio. So that's why you get like these blues songs like "Been Down So Long" and "Crawling King Snake" and that weird poetry recitation which I actually kind of really love. I love the Wasp, <laughs> Texas Radio and the Big Beat. You know, he somehow he manages to conflate both Texas and Virginia. He's like, crawled out of the Virginia swamps. And I'm just like saying, "Jim, like, you know, like it's a long walk from the Virginia swamps." To Texas, you got to cross a lot of miles, my friend, to get there. And you run um, into pharaohs along the way, too. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. Um, I really like this album a lot, and I think it, it, the, the, the there are three songs on this that are just hugely famous that everybody knows. Even if you don't know the Doors, you don't like the Doors, you know three of these songs. But I actually think that the one that's most representative of it is this is the opening track. It's the Changeling, uh, which is a very kind of a hardcore blues rocker. Uh, and it, it, it again is is produced immaculately, which is funny because Paul Rothschild left. He he, he quit producing the band. He heard the stuff, the early versions of this music, and he said like, ah, this is cocktail, jazz lounge music. I can't I can't produce it anymore. I don't know what he was thinking, but maybe he'd had enough of their antics. So Bruce Botnick, who had been their engineer, becomes their producer, and they they do it in their rehearsal studio. And it has a much more casual feel to it. But I think it comes off really well, and I think you really hear that in a great way on the Changeling. And I just love that final guitar solo that Krieger throws in at the end of that song, which I think to me is kind of like emblematic of, of the real strengths of L.A. Woman. But I never been so broke. I think the title track to me, it, it, just like Roadhouse Blues, 
is the core of Morrison Hotel. L.A. Woman is the core and really the towering achievement of this 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 last album. Oh yeah, you know, it, it's this it's kind of a suite, you know, where he you know, like you know, he goes off into different movements. Um, and you know, at one point there's this after the first verse, there's this heavenly break where Ray's piano intertwines with Robbie's guitar. Mm-hmm. And this song is kind of like Morrison's farewell to the city and maybe to life itself. Um, you know, when he says city of light, city of night, you can almost picture the, you know, like the view you always get of LA from the hills, right? Those lights, right? Thing, like from like um, Harry Bosch's veranda, you know, and uh, in that series of based on the, you know, Michael Connolly, the detective, you know, and his his LA again is the this this LA of what happens in the back alleys behind the mansions, right? You know, with Raymond Chandler and you know, and 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 the, the seedy corners, and you know, sort of the point of view sort of shifts when. And so you kind of feel that when he's saying, I've never seen a woman so alone, it's him who's so alone. And, and, you know, and biographically what's happened is, is he's about to leave LA and, 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 and never come back. And, you know, I think it's a probably the best song written about LA in, in, in many and one of the best Doors songs. said that it is to my mind the best song about los angeles ever um and yeah. i guess and and the funny thing is like there, there there are moments where like you know you should rebel you like when he does that whole mr mojo rising by the way for those who don't know mr mojo rising is literally it's an anagram of jim morrison mm-hmm. which is by the way i have to congratulate jim on having a name <laughs> that that could be rearranged and sent into such a cool phrase. <laughs> one, one which he might have come up with, one, even if it wasn't an anagram. I know, I know. That's the funny thing. Is like it could have just been a lyric for an old blues song, but it just happens to be his full name. Anagram: Jim Morrison, Mister Mojo Rising. But like, yeah, the um, the lyric, as as Stephen pointed out, is a really good one, and a really it it, it has that propulsion but also that sad loneliness you know i think what was it elvis presley who was jim morrison's idol 
said it's like you know uh, you know you can be lonely anywhere you can be lonely in the middle of a crowd mm-hmm. all right and that's the way that Morrison sounds on that song mm-hmm. it's like yeah yeah everyone's hanging on to me everyone's clinging on it's the city of lights city of nights all these women all these parties but you know at the end of the day I'm here and I'm alone and I'm by myself and that that kind of hits me it, it's it's not the pretension of the early jim morrison years it's something that that sticks with you and i think again this is why one of the reasons this album sticks with me. There, there, there's um there's a song like lamerica okay it's actually kind of a for the first like 40 seconds an interesting art rock experiment but i don't need it to go on for like four and a half minutes or whatever it is it's, it was it, originally it, written for that antonioni movies right point right and you know yeah antonioni quite wisely didn't like it. <laughs> it's clearly it's clearly the weakest link on this record yeah. but i think that that's so much including stuff like cars hiss by my window very kind of like you know like gentle bluesy weird kind of almost a you know there's i feel like there's there's a joke in there somewhere there's a there's a laugh in there somewhere about the way the arrangement is done but i really love that song i just i i find very little to criticize about this so scott why don't you just you know piss on our parade no i won't do that completely i I think it is an album in which um, there are some of the most essential door songs found here and some of the least essential doors songs found here. Uh, Jeff identified La America as one of them. I actually don't love the changeling. I gave it a lot of chances because I'm like, eh, maybe it's going to work. Not not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, like been right. been down so long. I'm not sure is it is a is an integral song in the band's catalog, and yet. You turn it around, and yes, as as Stephen was pointing out, man, L.A. Woman is just about as good as they've ever been. Um, it just sounds so good. Yes, uh, uh, Rothschild's gone, but Botnick is is producing here along with the band, and they still are using them some of the some some of the same techniques. I'm sure the drums just pop all over the place on L.A. Woman. It sounds great. By the way, I, it has to be pointed out they got Elvis's bass player, Jerry Chef, uh, Jerry Jerry Chef. Yeah. TCBB, man, uh, and they were just so happy with him. They actually wanted to go touring with him, and if Jim hadn't died, that was actually their plan. It's like yeah. let's let's bring Jerry on with us. And this uh, is oh man, what what they could have done. This is an album, you know. We we go from again at the start of the career and kind of the uh, uh, the picture many people have of the Doors being the band without a bass player. Yeah, but L.A. Woman. The bass is, is just a huge part of the sound on virtually all of these tracks. It helps when Jerry Chef's playing, but as the aforementioned been down so long, that tune is pulsating with bass. Uh, there's a couple of songs on here like that. Um, the one I, I like on the second half, and I think it's one of their best, is Hyacinth House. Man, that's yeah. one of their finest, finest yeah. songs, these very sad undertones. I see um, the bathroom is open. Yeah, the bathroom is clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Morrison's unhappiness and perhaps his you know declining emotional state and the way he just sort of warbles. You know, I'll say it again. I need a brand new friend. It's one of the times the uh, the curtains are, are 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 open, and I think you see a little bit of the real Morrison inside, perhaps on on Hyacinth House. It's mm-hmm. just a marvelous melody. Great, great song. I
Love Her Madly was actually the song that got Rothschild to leave. That's the one in particular. It's like, that's cocktail music. Well, successful cocktail music. Again, a super strong bass line right up front in that mix. Uh, tack piano, which generally indicates a good door song, I've realized. Uh, yeah, yeah. When, when, when Ray busts out the tack piano, it's, it's going to work. People are strange. You know, whiskey bar, you know, love her madly. Yep, yeah, you can't go wrong. Uh, the one downside about that song is I will forever connect it with Forrest Gump when the song, uh, when Jenny <sighs> almost uh, dives off the hotel balcony. I. I just, oh, that's what I think of now when I hear Love Her Madly. That's the power of music in movies, I suppose. Don't you love her madly? Don't you need her badly? Don't you love her ways? Tell me what you say. Highlights the the best stuff here is really fantastic, and uh, but I do think there are there are some songs, uh, America specifically, that that just are, are sort of inessential. It's hard to to get a read. I'm not sure it's going to end up in my top two. It's pretty close. Uh, but going back to Jeff Way at the start of the show, you know, The Doors being a white boy blues band at core, I think that really sort of repeats itself you go just back to absolutely live there's all sorts of you know blues covers and, and they did blues covers earlier in the career and it shines most clearly through on la woman where again that prominent bass uh the bluesy sound Dude, they're doing john lot. lee hooker they're yeah. doing crawling king yeah. right they're doing crawling king snake john lee hooker yeah yeah so that's here too it's uh but but again i think certainly la woman and, and hyacinthal those are just just pillars in the band's career, fantastic songs. Well, yeah. what about what about Riders on the Storm? And this is this is one that I think some. This is another one that Rothschild was like, "Well, that's cocktail." If this is cocktail lounge music, then you've been taking way too much LSD because this is like disturbing cocktail lounge <laughs> music. When uh, you know Jim is singing about how you know there's a killer on the road, his brain is squirming like a toad, which. Again, it's one of those lines that it's kind of fun to mock because squirming like a toad, yeah, not 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 the best thing, but uh, it, it kind of a visual image. It, it sort of makes sense, like a like, dog without a bone, an actor out on loan. That's a great and, line. Yeah, it's, yeah, so like this is a weird, dark, weird. Yeah, I think I think was one of those ones where where Jim said like you know I have like a script in my mind. This is a movie in my mind about. It's like, like he's know. writing for a Tarantino movie before Tarantino was even born. Right? Exactly. It's or like or like you know again you know Bruce Springsteen keeps coming up on these shows. It's like a Stark weather thing, like Nebraska, you know, like you know where <laughs> it's just like a. I'm out and I'm just on a killing spree and there's nothing you can do to stop me. But I, I um, understand why people do not always love that song. I think it is a great song. And I think it's kind of a fantastic way for them to sort of close out. Girl, you gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. 
song really right um, and you know and he's like kind of channeling jazz like he did in the break of light my fire but it's kind of like world weary after you know six years of madness right you know they're, they're ending on this you know uh gentle you know yet still disturbing they haven't given up their their theme right and in a way maybe they've broken through to the other side and you know it isn't so great yeah um and then after the singing stops they, they just keep going Storm. and then there's the chromatics remember that the, the ray and you know robbie kind of trade these little chromatic sounds right uh back and forth and then the last rumbling thunder there's the sound effects which i think actually weirdly work here and yeah. bang, the doors are gone and mr mojo goes to paris and then he's dead so okay here's the thing uh, as as everyone who understands basic rock history knows <laughs> jim morrison went to paris and indeed he died under I guess the always the term always used, and I think is even in Wikipedia is under mysterious circumstances. Uh, well, probably a heroin overdose. Nobody's certain about it, but yeah, it's probably what it was. Um, and uh, what the heck happens next? Well, think the thing that will maybe amuse and shock some of the people listening to this episode is that the doors didn't actually fold after Jim Morrison died. They put out not one but two more albums two more albums there are two trio uh, albums post jim morrison albums where uh, it's it's ray manzarek and robbie krieger taking the vocals and uh, you might think to yourself what the heck is the point of listening to the doors without jim morrison and uh, i sound I'm, I'm 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 trying to come across here as really really diffident because you pretty much have a point why I will argue this, though, that Other Voices, the first post-Jim Morrison album, actually, it's not bad. It just doesn't have that distinctive imprimatur of Jim Morrison and, you know, that his, his, his lyrical conceits and his vocal approach. But there are good songs on Other Voices that nobody has ever heard because, like, you know, I, you know Stephen saw them live during this era, but everyone else has either forgotten that it exists <laughs> or pretended that it didn't happen. I think there's there's one song in particular. It's called Ships with Sails. It's a good song. Very good song. There are actually a lot of very good songs. I think Tightrope Ride, Down on the Farm, Wandering Musician, they're all pretty good songs. But it's just impossible to get away from the fact that when they lost Jim as a voice, they lost something that could not be replaced. And uh, I still do think that the play out on Ships with Sails is, is one of the better instrumental moments of the Doors' career. Mm -hmm. 
But then again, that's because no one's trying to sing. And, and when you hear Ray Manzarek sing... Ray's not, not a you, singer. You, yeah, yeah. You're not going to be happy hearing Ray sing. You know, I, I'm channeling, even though I saw them live, I'm channeling Lou Adler here. Nothing I can use from those, <laughs> <laughs> from those records. I mean, to me, you can't... You can't and the, the mystery of... The doors after the march of those three people is they were such talented musicians. Why did these young men not accomplish anything else of note? You know that we can be talking about. You know that you know, yeah, you could listen to those songs and say, "Gee, this part is good." And and weirdly, you know, that song "Mosquito" is kind of fun, mm -hmm. um, which sort of channels this outtake from maybe Soft Parade called "Push Push," where they did sort of like a Guantanamera kind of jam. But but it's like, why? You know, I mean, what what for what reason would you go to your celestial jukebox and pick out? <laughs> full circle to listen to i'm going to listen to this today man you know, I, I, you know that, that's worth like 45 minutes of my time no and you know so I, I i'm just mystified why nothing came of that so in my old history um i take you know if you think about it fleetwood mac around that time went through these changes and they wound up taking on lindsey buckingham and stevie nicks what if the doors the trio had plucked them when they were free agents in 19, you know, 71, uh, yeah. 73 or whatever they became. The, what, what, what would that collaboration have been like or, or something like that? You know, because it's a mystery to me because they were so great and, you know, uh, worked so well together um, and could have worked into other people's bands. Why that ended for them. Scott, I know you have deeply felt opinions about these last two Jim Morrison list Doors albums. Well, to be honest, I didn't give them a listen. I, I knew <laughs> they existed, but I didn't give them a listen until preparing for the show. So I don't have a deep history. Well, with other you know, there's a good reason circle. for that. They're, they're, I don't even think they've ever been reissued on CD. I think I, they, they just they, were they a, couple of, a couple of years ago for the first time. I think they were. Fun. Right. But, but, but that tells you everything you need to know. Right. Like even the band themselves, <laughs> despite continuing on for two years after Jim's death, just sort of decided to pretend that they did didn't happen <laughs> and, oh, oh. Like, and that like yeah well the doors ended with la woman other voices uh, is... they spend a good part of their career kind of like they do background music for jim morrison's poetry right they curate albums um i'd watch the youtube video recorded in may of robbie krieger and his dog you know talking <laughs> you know they're saying hey we're coming out with 50th anniversary of morrison <laughs> hotel and blah, blah 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 and you know isn't it terrible that you know the earth is overpopulated and i mean and, and it's like what a great guitar player why did he not hook up with 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 with, with someone or okay well I'll, I'll give i'll give ray this much credit ray manzarek uh you know was always the most pretentious of the doors uh he turned out to be a pretty excellent producer he, he is the guy who produced all those great early albums by x mm -hmm. which is one of one of the great los angeles oh, really? punk bands yeah. oh yeah he he produced I, I all, he all... Covered the doors i didn't realize he was a producer no, he produced uh, X, and uh, it, it turned out you would have thought, like, oh, the guy from The Doors producing this punk band? Oh, no, he was great. Sympathetic producer, played on some of their stuff, too. Um, and uh, those early uh, X albums are just fantastic. I've, I've often joked about, not joked, I mean, I actually said, like, I would really love to do uh, a, a show about them at some point. 
because uh, they're kind of forgotten, but they were really great. Uh, so Manzarek had a pretty good, you know, you know, career as a producer after the fact. But yeah, you're right. Like, you know, I think even Chris Gaff said this when he was reviewing one of their uh, their two post Morrison albums. He's like, you know, all the people who told me that like, you know, Jim Morrison is holding these great musicians back. You know, and I listened to this music. I was like, uh, well, I think they, they might have to answer for their claims. Um, I don't it, the thing about other I, thing about other voices. Just quickly, too, is. It was really six months after L.A. Woman, three months after Morrison's death. I mean, this was quick, and it didn't. Well, because 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 they expected Morrison to come back and right. sing they were on ready. a lot of these they had, songs. Right, they had songs the ready to go, and it also didn't stiff. It did go to thirty-one of the charts, which isn't uh, top ten, but isn't uh, you know scraping the low one hundred. So there there was at least some initial interest uh, in, in what they were doing with uh, the other voices album and. Um, as Jeff said, Ships with Sails is good. There's another song I think Jeff likes too, and I, I do too. Down on the Farm is, is, is an yeah. interesting track, and they actually had some success with the track that uh, that Stephen mentioned from Full Circle, The Mosquito, which is a really cooking <laughs> guitar workout for Krieger. So the, there's some interesting things, although on Full Circle, Botnik's gone too, and the production takes a humongous hit on Full Circle. Yeah, it still is right. pretty decent on other voices, but not on Full Circle. But it's also just so strange and funny how this has been completely memory-holed in the story of The Doors. And I think you know that story was starting to be sort of built like a brick edifice you know, throughout the late 70s, and especially in the early 80s when the first biographies came out. Um, and then and this is the last thing I want to end on. Did has everybody here seen the Oliver Stone film, of The course. Doors? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, anybody want to, like, you know, you know, express their opinions on it? Because I feel like we can't do a Doors episode without talking about The Doors, the movie, the Oliver Stone film with Val Kilmer. By the way, doing a great Jim Morrison impression. Yeah, I, I rewatched it. Um, uh, it's a bad movie, really. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's his worst film, I, th- I would Oliver, say. Yeah. Yes, Oliver Stone has done a lot better movies and you know i mean the the doors themselves hated it uh supposedly it was based in part on densmore's thing but um manzarek actually wrote his own book to try to uh refute some of the stuff though i don't think factually it, it was you know they, they mixed different facts and you know did what hollywood did it, it's about the but story it, of it's, it's about omission it's yeah, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. all was jim morrison's most outrageous yeah. moments but all none of the parts we talked about human. here i think weren't reflected in the movie Right. It, 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 the thing about The Doors that always has ticked me off, uh, especially now when I, I went back and watched it too recently before the show, is that like it gets all the outrageous moments. Jim Morrison, you know, drunk and, you know, doing weird like, you know, you know, drinking the blood of serpents and like Wiccan, you know, wedding rituals and sex and orgies and all that stuff. And, you know, yeah, that's all sensationalistic. And yes, it's indeed outrageous. And that probably makes for good, you know, copy and good movie script writing. But it kind of omits what like the reality of the guy was. He was a troubled guy. He was a human being. He was a jerk, but he was also like from all accounts, he was actually like a trying to be a genuinely nice guy. You know, you know like the, was, uh, first of all, yeah. it's the worst performance Meg Ryan will ever give but, you know, <laughs> as, as Pam Corson. But you know, if you want to like get a, a glimpse of Morrison, there's this fantastic essay by uh, Eve Babbitts that came out around the time of the movie. Again, as as a corrective, called Jim Morrison is dead and living in Hollywood. And it's in the Esquire archive. You you can get that. And yeah. she, she, you know, is a fantastic writer who was a participant in that scene, and you know, can actually uh, had a thing with Morrison. Um, and you know, 
after the passion cool, um, they were became friends because she was one of the smartest people in LA and he liked to talk to her. Um, and you know, she really gives an insight into him about her, her take on him as he was like a fat kid as a kid right. who woke up one day and he had shed all the fat and he looked like a young Adonis and, <laughs> you know, and, and had to, to, to cope with that. And, uh, the things that you were, you guys were saying before about him and fame, you know, how that played on him. And, you know, and her take was that the big mistake was leaving LA for Paris because she feels that they, the people in LA would not have let him die like that. You know, uh, they had no one to call, but, uh, it's definitely worth reading. I mean, this is actually basically the burden that I have to live with right now, you know, becoming a, a human Adonis. <laughs> That's you what know, you've been at, doing at during the, the lockdown. At the age of 40, it's just, it's just such a burden, all, the, all these people clinging to me. But I, I, I guess that brings us to, to the I, end I of see, the show. I see Jeff working out at home like De Niro in Cape Fear. That's what's <laughs> happening during the shutdown. I'm tattooing love and hate on my knuckles yeah. as we speak. Okay. Anyways, Scott, let's take it home. Yeah, yes, that's the political beach look at the world of the doors. We come to the point of the episode in which all of us, all three of us, give you two albums for the band that you really should own and five songs that you should hear. Not necessarily from those uh, two albums in particular. Uh, the the, cat- uh, the uh, criteria, whatever we want, is how it works out. Stephen Levy is with us, editor-at-large for Wired, best-selling author, his most recent book, Facebook, The Inside Story, and now he gives you the two albums and five songs. Stephen, the floor is yours. Okay, well, uh, it's no surprise I'm picking The Doors, the debut album, as one of my records. Um I think it's it's in the pantheon, you know, and you know, it 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 just hit like a like a nuclear bomb when it came out, and it's still to me. I listen to that and I I tap into that excitement again. So definitely, um, I love both Morrison Hotel and L.A. Woman. I suspect some people are going to go for Morrison Hotel, so I'm going to pick L.A. Woman as my second album, and you know, and and be happy with it because of you know th- those. Three songs in particular, um, uh, L.A. Woman, uh, Riders in the Storm, and Hyacinth House, and, you know, Lover Madly, there's, there's also, two, like, just great stuff and a great end to that. Um, so those are my albums. Um, for the songs, I think Light My Fire is so iconic, they don't even need to say it, so I'm not counting it. <laughs> so there's Break On Through, uh, Five to One, uh, Gotta Be Roadhouse Blues, and L.A. Woman. And the other one is the first cut on Absolutely Live, where Larry Magid, the concert promoter, tells everyone to sit down or the doors aren't going to play. And that's because I was one of the people he was telling to sit down. (laughs) So that's my contribution to the doors. uh, And that's one of my cuts. All right. For uh, my two albums, uh, Morrison Hotel, which I mentioned earlier, I think is, is their best work. And the, the boy, the number two slot for me is is hard to 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 pin down here. And in the end, um, waiting for the sun is the second Doors album that I would recommend. Song wise, uh, Peace Frog certainly for Morrison Hotel and L.A. Woman, the title track from that final Doors album with Morrison. Uh, those two songs are, are are probably the most iconic. I mean, the most iconic of Light Might Fire and things like that. But I I, I don't think they were any, ever any better. That on those two tracks. Hyacinth House is on my list of five from late in the career. And we go back a bit for Love Street, which I talked quite a bit about earlier. 
and I should pick something. I will pick something for the first uh, two albums, and that's Soul Kitchen from uh, the opening debut album from The Door. Soul Kitchen is uh, my five, and uh, I already talked about it in maybe like a, just a quick plus one. Touch Me. A- every second of Touch Me is great. It's the only highlight likely from that album, but yeah, Touch Me. Yeah! <laughs> Over to Jeff for your two albums and five songs. All right, so I made a decision going into the uh, show here that I would uh, make my two album recommendations and then I would make my top five songs and uh, make sure that there was no overlap because I think the two albums that you need to hear from The Doors are Strange Days and Morrison Hotel. Why? Well, you listen to the show, you got this far, you know why. Um, I think they're they're both excellent records, front to back. There really aren't really any weak spots on, on them. Yes, including Mute Nostril Agony from Horse Latitudes. I like it. Uh, I think that they're great. And I could have named like five songs from each of them if I were to do my top five. You Lost Little Girl, People Are Strange, Roadhouse Blues, Peace Frog, and all that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick five songs from the rest of their career. And from the rest of their career, I think the first one I'll start with is uh, Soul Kitchen, which Scott just mentioned. You know, I would like to sleep all night in your Soul Kitchen. Uh, I think it is really a fun stomp and blues song. And uh, again, you know, as, as Stephen pointed out, there's a reason they played it all the way up until the end of their live career because, man, this thing burned live. It was just putting kind of the backbone of the doors. And when you remember that the doors were a blues band, that Soul Kitchen is, is kind of their DNA. Second one I'm going to say is boy, this might sound like a cliche, but it's Light My Fire. Yeah, come on, baby, light my fire. Try to set the night on fire. He rhymes fire with fire. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 it might be Robbie's fault, actually. He might have written those lyrics, but yeah, it's still something that I laugh at. But it's really about the instrumental breakdowns on that. It, it, it's about Ray's solo, and especially about Robbie Krieger's guitar solo on Light My Fire that really actually do impress the heck out of me even now. Uh, my third one is going to be one that I know is controversial for Steven because he said he hated it, but I do love it, and it's Wintertime Love off of Waiting for the Sun. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exhale breath, you know. I, I really love that little waltzy feel. And I, I love the fact that it's like so different from everything else that the Doors did, too. Uh, you know, they're usually jazz or blues or, or going for a rock sound. And then here they're, they're doing something that's, you know, semi Bach. Maybe it's a little blue Strauss, blue Danube kind of a feel to it. Spanish Caravan, also from Waiting for the Sun is uh, uh, the other one that I would pick from that record. Uh, again, very classical feel, uh, classical guitar, flamenco guitar. Uh, and I really love the fact that, again, the doors at their extremity, uh, out of ideas, out of their old songs, just go reach for completely strange things and somehow manage to pull them off. And then the final one I'll mention is L.A. Woman from L.A. Woman, which I think is a great album. And it would have been, if I could name three albums, it would have been the third one that I would have brought up on the show. Uh, but, yeah, as, as we have already all said, Stephen in particular has pointed out, this is one of the truly iconic Doors songs. And uh, there's really not a second on it that I would uh, remove or change. The only thing I wish I could have is I could, I could have more of – of uh, John and Robbie and Ray just just playing away on that beat, comping away, you know, throwing out guitar licks and piano licks as it fades out. I could have listened to that for 25 minutes. It is close to, I would say, their best song of all time. LA Woman, LA Woman, 
there we are, the Political Beats look at the music and career of the Doors. We thank our guest on this show, editor-at-large for Wired, best-selling author. Check out Facebook, The Inside Story, at Stephen Levy on Twitter. Stephen Levy, thanks for joining us here on Political Beats. Thank you. I had a great time. Great insight, and as I mentioned early in the show, it's good to have so, someone who actually attended door shows. How about that? Uh, Jeff, another fine episode as we come to the end of our run of summer shows here. Hey, I just want to point out that I actually saw Elvis Presley playing in Memphis in 1957 in a past life. <laughs> <laughs> How was he? Uh, he was pretty good, but you know what? Uh, he didn't have the moves. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. He had to work on that. At Esoteric CD on Twitter. Uh, my name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Again, subscribe to our feed. Get those new episodes. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Go to nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share them, and leave reviews. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.